Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, March 15th. Thanks for waking up with us. Here are five things to know this morning. There are new tensions between the U.S. and Russia over the downing of a U.S. surveillance drone. The Pentagon says that Russian fighter jets clipped the drone over the Black Sea, forcing it to crash. Russia denies the accusation, claiming that the drone mm, fell on its own. Yeah, and another day of jitters over the fate of America's banking system appear to be easing slightly. Stocks of some regional banks bouncing back after suffering dramatic declines. The fallout, however, is far from over. The DOJ and the SEC now investigating the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Also this morning, a high-stakes case over abortion pills set to get its day in court. A federal judge in Amarillo, Texas, will hear arguments over a lawsuit that could disrupt access to the pills nationwide. Protests are planned outside the courthouse. Also, the FAA convening a rare safety summit today after seven close calls on U.S. runways. The latest incident just happened on March 7th at Reagan National. The FAA says a flight crossed the runway just moments after another plane was given the OK for takeoff. And as Mars Blackman said, it's got to be the shoes, right? Sotheby's announcing the auction of Michael Jordan's game-worn 13s from the 1998 NBA Finals. Those sneakers expected to go for a record amount. Some estimates say they could go for $4 million. Yeah, all this is coming as, you know, that... One thing everyone in Washington is going to be watching is that hearing on those plane incidents that have been happening. There's been so many near misses that I, I just think it's raised so many concerns. Time for some action. Don't you think they should be talking about it? And, and <laughs> doing something about it? Because the people on the planes it? and Americans are definitely and talking about it. doing something about it? For sure. We'll see yeah. what comes of that. That's what the acting FAA administrator said. But so. still acting. To your point, they still don't have a permanent one. They had a hearing for the other one, but we'll see if it actually yeah. becomes permanent. We'll get to that in, later in the show, but also this morning, we're seeing tensions escalate after the Pentagon said that a Russian fighter jet clipped a U.S. spy drone and forced the U.S. to down it. The dangerous encounter happened yesterday over the Black Sea. The U.S. says that a Russian jet dumped fuel on the drone several times, then clipped its propeller, which forced the U.S. to down it into the water nearby. They're still working to recover it this morning, actually. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the confrontation is reckless. And we don't want to see this war escalate beyond what it already has done to the uh, Ukrainian people. Uh, and so this is this is clearly this was inappropriate, uh, unsafe, uh, unprofessional conduct by the Russian pilots. After that happened, the U.S. summoned Russia's ambassador to the State Department. You can see him here. He was going in. He was there for about 30 minutes. He claimed there was no collision. and the, the U.S. has been warned not to enter U.S. airspace as this war is raging on in Ukraine. This drone can carry a few bombs. You see that what will be the reaction of United States if you see such Russian drone very close, for example, to San Francisco or New York? What will be, will be the reaction of the United States? For me, it's clear. Those were comments he made after leaving the State Department yesterday. Again, that's the Russian ambassador to the U.S. All of this comes as President Vladimir Putin is about to make a public appearance any moment now. We're waiting to see if he weighs in on the drone incident. Our national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand, is tracking this developing story for us. Natasha, I know that the U.S. says, you know, these interceptions happen all the time. But the way this happened, this kind of contact between the Russia and the U.S. militaries, it's the first we've seen of something like this, this grave. What else do we know? 
Yeah, Caitlin, and of course it comes at a very sensitive time between the U.S. and Russia, right? Obviously, they are both operating in the region, and the potential for escalation and miscalculation is very high. So what we're learning is that the Russian fighter jets kind of tracked this drone for about 30 to 40 minutes over the Black Sea in international waters before coming close to the drone and actually dumping fuel on it and then going behind the drone and making contact with its propeller, causing the drone to essentially become inoperable and forcing the U.S. military to then take it down over international waters. Now, the U.S. is saying that this was extremely incompetent, essentially. They're saying that the pilots lacked competence and that they were reckless and dangerous. The big question, however, is was this just a maneuver, an unsafe maneuver by the pilot itself, or was this something that actually came from the Kremlin? The Pentagon is not saying at this moment. However, they are warning the Russians in very stark terms that this kind of behavior can cause an escalation that could draw the two countries into a conflict. The Pentagon saying, that there was no confrontation, there was no communication directly between the U.S. and the Russians while this confrontation actually occurred, uh, which is raising questions, of course, about whether those lines of communication are operating properly. Caitlin, yeah, obviously a concern if they're not even talking to each other. Uh, we know the U.S. is working to recover this, but what is the concern that officials have if Russia gets there first? Yeah, so it's unclear whether the U.S. will actually even be able to recover this. We are told that there are no naval assets in the Black Sea at this moment that are working to recover it. But the White House has said that they have taken steps to protect their equities. They would not go any further than that, but implying essentially that they are taking steps to prevent the drone from falling into Russian hands. Now, the Pentagon press secretary was asked about this yesterday, whether uh, the Russians have been themselves trying to get a hold of the drone, which again fell uh, into the Black Sea. They would not go there. But what we are told is that they are taking all possible steps to prevent sensitive technology, of course, this drone from falling into the Russian hands, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon. Thank you. Obviously something the White House is following. I'm going to get now to CNN's Priscilla Alvarez with the very latest reaction from the White House. What are they saying? Well, President Biden was briefed on this just yesterday by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. But the through line, as you heard there from Natasha, has been that the conduct by the Russian pilots was, quote, inappropriate, unsafe and unprofessional. That is what we have been hearing from the White House, as they've also stressed that intercepts in this region are common. But what was different and unique about this incident was just how unsafe it is. Now, the White House has also dismissed Russia's denial of the incident and said that they are taking steps, again, as you heard there, uh, to uh, protect their private equities, but not sharing much more than that. Now, of course, the administration has been in touch with allies going so far as to also summon the Russian ambassador to the U.S. to relay those concerns. But the bottom line is really that the U.S. will not stop operating in this region. Don? Is the White House hesitant to take further action against Russia here? Now, of course, this comes at a critical time and there's always risk of a dangerous escalation as this war continues. But they have stressed that they have those lines of communication, those diplomatic lines with Russia. We saw evidence of that just yesterday, again, with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. And that is where they are right now at risk, of course, is any escalation. And that is what they're trying to avoid. All right. Priscilla Alvarez at the White House for us this morning. Thank you very much for that. Let's talk a lot more about what has developed here. CNN military analyst, retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton is here. Cedric. Morning. So explain to us what exactly the capabilities are of what is known as an MQ-9 Reaper drone. And do you understand what John Kirby is saying when he says they're working to, quote, protect the equities of it? How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question, Poppy. Good morning to you. The uh, the whole 
business here is, of course, about sensitive intelligence. So the basic capabilities of the Reaper, it uh, flies at up to 50,000 feet, so almost as high as that balloon that we uh, shot down off the coast of South Carolina. Uh, but what it does is it's an intelligence collection platform. It can also be an armed uh, platform, but uh, in this particular case, I'm certain that it was an intelligence collection platform, uh, supports strike missions, but uh, mainly it's done for surveillance purposes. And uh, one of the big things about this is that it has a range of about 1,150 miles. It can stay up for about 24 hours, uh, and it, uh, it, you know, it has a big wingspan of 66 feet, so it's wider than a lot of aircraft, mm. but it can do a lot of collection of different intelligence sources, specifically signals and imagery intelligence. So that's why it's a big deal uh, to make sure that the Russians don't know exactly how good it is at collecting this kind of intelligence. One, oh, I was just going to say, do you have any insight into how the U.S. could remotely, if they don't get their hands on it first, how can they remotely protect all of that intelligence? So one of the things that can happen, uh, Poppy, is they can actually uh, zeroize the equipment. Uh, so what they can do huh. is they can take the the cryptography that is associated with that and uh, make it null and void in essence. So what that does is anybody who looks at that then won't be able to see what's been transmitted. Okay. But let's talk about how this all happened, because it's the details of what we're hearing from John Kirby that are also fascinating here, where he's saying, you know, and the other Pentagon officials, is that basically these Russian fighter jets were flying in front of the drone. They were dumping fuel on it before this even happened. You actually think it was a mistake that they clipped the wing, right? Yeah, I do think that, uh, Caitlin. And, and, you know, the reason I think it was a mistake is, you know, when you look at the way in which uh, these drones operate and the way in which uh, the Russians fly their aircraft, uh, they come really close to this. This is a picture of the drone as it's getting ready to take off. Uh, but what the Russians did was they went to this area right here, dumped fuel on this part, and then they moved back uh, as the uh, craft was flying and they hit the propeller right there. So that was a key thing when it did when they did that that made it impossible for the drone to fly and uh, the air force which was operating this remotely had no choice but to uh, basically uh, let it sink into the ocean and they uh, into the black sea and they made it uh, that way because they needed to clear it from the skies so that it wasn't a risk to other aviation assets i mean what stands out to me is just looking at the drone it's, it's an enormous drone. Most people don't think of them being... Yeah, it's not like a household big. drone. Yeah, it's, it's huge. Yeah, it is. And, you know, take a look right here, Don. What you can see is it's about 36 feet in length. The wingspan is 66 feet. Compare that to the Russian fighter, uh, which is a lot longer, but it has a shorter wingspan of only almost 50 feet, 48.2 feet. So what you're seeing there is uh, really a relative comparison. This is a smaller aircraft, uh, but it is a highly effective aircraft. These guys, though, can fly a lot faster than the Reaper can. Hey, real quick, is that a typical size? Yeah, average. that's that's the average size of a Reaper right here. And of the fighter, that's about average for a fighter of that type. It's all fascinating, Colonel. Thanks very, very much. You bet. So we are going to be joined by John Kirby from the White House a little bit later in the program. Where do things stand now? What did they learn overnight? He is here on CNN this morning. And as we wait for that, we want to move to the extreme weather that is battering both coasts. In the West, it's rain. Parts of California have been shattering daily records as the rain just keeps on falling. More than 13 million people there and in Arizona are under flood watches this morning. In the east, it's a snow, it's snow, a lot of it. The nor'easter that left parts of New York and New England 
buried under at least three feet of snow. More is actually on the way. Some areas of the mid-Atlantic and the northeast are also seeing high wind alerts. More than 237,000 people in five states are without power this morning. Our meteorologist Chad Myers is in the CNN Weather Center tracking it all. I mean, it's like every different spot on the map, something else is going on. What are you watching the closest, Chad? Watching the storm in the northeast pull away, but after it's already dumped about 36 inches of concrete snow there. So people really having a hard time digging out. And also now the snow and rain coming into southern, southwestern California. I mean, we are really seeing rain all the way even into San Diego at this hour. Here's what's left of the snow right now, but what's not going away is the wind. The winds here will be 40 to 50 miles per hour today. The snow totals from three feet down to almost nothing in Boston because of that ocean effect. But here's the wind. The wind's gonna be all day long, 40, 50 miles per hour. These branches are loaded with snow. These branches are gonna be blowing back and forth, possibly coming down and really even bringing down more power and more power lines. Here's the rain into Southern California for this morning. Take it when you can get it, but some spots just don't need any more. What is good about this, the positive of this storm is when it gets into Colorado, and we're working on spring ski season now. There will be new feet of snow, feet of snow in Colorado, just in time for all those spring breakers. Yeah, welcome news for those spring breakers. Hopefully they stay yeah. safe out there. Chad Myers, thank you. Chad Myers, always looking on the bright side. Always got to keep spring snow. break in mind when you're thinking about the weather right now. <laughs> the spring ski season. Meantime, the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission are investigating the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank as regulators scramble to contain the fallout what prosecutors are now looking into, plus this. To say this doesn't matter is to say that war crimes don't matter. Obviously, he doesn't deal with foreign policy every day as governor. Those are Republican hawks pushing back on Republican Governor Ron DeSantis after saying that support for Ukraine is not a vital national interest for the United States, what it could mean for his chances at the GOP presidential nomination. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's new fallout this morning over the sudden failure of Silicon Valley Bank. The Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission both now investigating the collapse of the bank and examining stock sales that were made by SVB's financial officers days beforehand. We should be clear, we do not know this morning whether or not these investigations are going to lead to any charges or allegations of wrongdoing, but it does come as shareholders have also filed a class action lawsuit against the bank's parent company, and Democrats, several of them progressive members of the Democratic Party, have unveiled a bill that would essentially restore the regulations that were rolled back by a pretty large bipartisan majority in 2018. Wall Street is breathing a sigh of relief after yesterday where stocks rallied, including those of other mid-sized banks that had tanked a day earlier. It's a sign investors do feel reassured by the government's quick intervention. So far as we were tracking these developments with CNN's Paula Reed, Paula, what do these investigations look like? How similar are the ones between the DOJ and the SEC? And Caitlin, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because a source tells me the Justice Department is looking into the collapse of SVB. The SEC has also opened its own probe. And these investigations right now, they're in their preliminary stages. They are looking into both the bank's failure as well as actions by senior executives in the lead up to the decision, of course, by federal regulators to shutter the lender last week. And while the exact nature of the investigations remain unclear, 
When you have an event like the failure of SVB, something so significant, an investigation like this is very common in the immediate aftermath. Now, I've spoken to some former federal prosecutors, and they say one area that may be of a special interest to Justice Department lawyers involves shares that were sold by top company executives before the bank imploded, as well as the disclosures by the bank about its financial health. Now, interestingly, the SEC chairman kind of alluded to all of this in his statement Sunday. He didn't identify any specific institution, but he did say, we will investigate and bring enforcement actions if we find violations of federal securities law. Now, as you noted, nobody has been accused of wrongdoing. It's unclear if anyone will be charged. Uh, this could result in a criminal case or it could ultimately serve as more of an autopsy and an after action report, depending on what they uncover. Yeah, a lot of questions about what went wrong. Paula Reed, thank you. And a lot probably to uncover. A lot. So let's talk about what happened yesterday. Interesting, at the close, most bank stocks did rally. The smoke has not cleared fully yet, though. Moody's placed six U.S. banks on review for a potential credit rating downgrade and slashed its outlook for the whole U.S. banking sector. Let's bring in our chief business correspondent and CNN anchor, Christine Romans. That was huge. What does yeah. it mean that Moody's did this? And is it indi indicating future bank collapses? So I think the most important thing is things have really stabilized here. We saw that yesterday. So stability is back in the system. But what Moody's Investor Services is warning is that we should be prepared for harder times ahead for so many of these of these banks. The banking industry could stay under pressure just because the Fed has raised interest rates so dramatically. And you've got so many uh, banks with a lot of deposits that are above the uninsured, you know, the, un the insurance line, right? So you've got people who could be trying to move banks at the same time that the, the, the investments that they parked their assets in are, you know, under value right now. So we should be prepared for maybe more strain in the system. And if there are failures, what I'm hearing is that they will be contained, right? They've ring-fenced these, these uh, banks that have failed, and we'll be watching closely for other weaknesses in the system. But right now, things have stabilized. So a lot has been, we've been talking about the social media aspect of this, the technology, yeah. the information aspect. Because you remember Washington Mutual, the biggest bank failure in yeah. 2008. Um, Poppy and I were talking in the break. Um, it took, what, 10 days, 10 days in 2008 for Washington Mutual to come down? 24 hours, yeah. though, for Silicon Valley Bank. Is there an internet effect here? Absolutely. I mean, this was a social media run on this bank. It was a it was a run on the bank. And if you look at the, the biggest uh, failures, Washington Mutual in 2008 is right at the top of that list. And the second one is this SVB. And if you look at the withdrawals, right, in 2008 at Washington Mutual, uh, it was $10.7 billion withdrawn over, over, I think, 10 or $16 billion withdrawn over 10 days. And this was $42 billion in 24 hours. Wow. And that's because you had people texting each other. You had VC venture capitalists texting the founders of companies saying, get your money out of here. Uh, you had uh, Twitter conversations about get your money out of this bank and just so much more fast-paced banking. I mean, think about it. If you, like, for example, if you look at the, the website of Washington Mutual from 2008, it just looks like this old-fashioned website. Now you've got online banking. So people were moving their funds um, out of, in real time, out of SVB. We just have never seen a run on that uh, quite as quickly. And I think that's one thing that really concerned regulators, how quickly that panic was, uh, was spreading and how quickly that money was coming out of those bank accounts. That was yeah, probably look, advanced in 2008. Look yeah. how, but look how old that looks now. Like looking at that, it looks like something's wrong with your computer. It was fancy back then. It does show you just how remarkable it is, like the difference in what, how people banked then, how people bank now.
Patrick McHenry, the congressman from North Carolina, he's the chairman of the House Financial Services right. Committee. He's I'm fascinated on his thoughts on this. But he said, you know, this is the first Twitter fueled bank run that we've seen. Yeah, and he's not wrong. He's not wrong. And that's what I think really got in, you know, so many regulators so concerned because this spread so quickly here. Um, and what turned out at, at the base of it was sort of like banking 101 failure. They just had the wrong duration of, of treasuries and they were caught out. You know, they were unable to raise $2 billion quickly. Um, and, and just the way that it spread on the Internet, I think, is very interesting. And I think a cautionary tale for regulators to really watch here as the banking system stays maybe under pressure, as Moody says, guys. You know, it's so interesting. We learned from that New York Times reporting this morning that uh, top Treasury official went to Jamie Dimon who uh, is, you know, the only surviving CEO in terms of still running the bank he ran during the 2008 financial crisis, went to Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan on Friday and said, could this be bigger? Could this be systemic to the financial system? And Dimon said there is potential it could be. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Look, there's a lot of nuance, but we're saying, you know, this is the Internet. But basically, SVB has the most responsibility. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And wait, can I just say, your, your money is safe in your bank. And, and Moody's Investor Services made the point that the banking system is strong. The banking system is stronger today than it was in 2008. If you go to your bank to withdraw your money, it will be there. You can, you can rest assured yeah. about that. Interesting that they went to the big banks, Treasury, to say, you know, do we need to step in here and in what capacity? Yeah. So thank you, Romans, very much. Uh, be sure to tune in tonight, CNN Primetime, to see Bank Bust, what is next for America's money. We're going to talk to experts about how this happened, what it means for you, for your bank, all ahead tonight. My favorite, though, is Christine what? Roman's um, little bruised banks in the, the piggy, piggy bank, bank with, the, I mean, with it's the a great graphic. on it. I don't think Roman's created that herself, but yeah. we'll see. I'll take credit for it. Um, <laughs> Poppy, can't wait to watch that. Thank you. That's going to be really... Ro- Ro- you'll be with me. Really yeah. interesting. No sleep for us tonight. I'll see you tonight, Poppy. Good night. Yeah, but two people spending an hour talking about this. It's going to be a really good deep dive. Meanwhile, this morning, there's also a political divide. Governor Ron DeSantis angering Republican hawks and his party over his stance on Ukraine. What does it mean for 2024 and his position? And he is facing criminal inquiries and ethics investigations, yet he signaled his intention for a possible re-election bid. We're going to tell you what George Santos is up to now. Like a week. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, facing some significant backlash from hawks in his own party over his stance on Russia's war in Ukraine. The Florida governor and likely presidential candidate drew a line in the sand when he told Fox News that he doesn't think protecting Ukraine is vital to U.S. interests. Instead, he called it a territorial dispute and a distraction from bigger challenges here at home. This morning, some top Senate Republicans are pushing back. Listen. Well, it's not a territorial dispute in the sense that any more than it would be a territorial dispute if the United States decided that it wanted to invade Canada or take over the Bahamas. To say this doesn't matter is to say that war crimes don't matter. He's going to go beyond Ukraine, Putin. If you don't get that, you're not listening to what he's saying. This is a chance to stop Putin before it gets to be a bigger war, and China's watching. That's Rubio and Graham there. There are others. So joining us now, national political correspondent for The New York Times, Shane Goldmacher. Shane, good morning to you. What do you make of uh, this divide in the Republican Party uh, on Ukraine? As we were talking this morning in the meeting, Caitlin pointed out, this is not just members of these are hawks, right, who are disagreeing with Ron DeSantis. I mean, I think this is a big moment for the Republican Party and its own evolution on foreign policy 
and it's a big moment for the 2024 campaign. How so? Well, the Republican Party historically has been hawkish, right? They have been wanting to project strength against Russia, strength abroad. And Donald Trump came in and said, we want to project strength first here at home. It was this whole America first agenda. And that was an outlier in the Republican Party. But Ron DeSantis and Trump together make up the vast majority of support in the potential 2024 field. And now they're both coming in on that side of the ledger. And so that's a big shift for the party itself. And it's really notable. You see Marco Rubio, you see Lindsey Graham. These are, Lindsey Graham is supporting Donald Trump, but it's interesting, he's choosing to criticize Ron DeSantis for agreeing with the candidate he's actually backing in 2024. Yeah, and Rubio coming out and saying that, saying, you know, he doesn't deal with foreign policy every day as governor. I mean, he's the senior senator in his state. When it comes to Lindsey Graham saying, you know, to say you don't care about war crimes, what Ron DeSantis said was more nuanced than that. He was not saying that. But it is interesting because Ron DeSantis previously supported arming Ukraine, as Poppy pointed out yesterday. I think what's most fascinating about this is getting the first look at Ron DeSantis' foreign policy. Absolutely. He's been a blank slate on this issue. And and Rubio's not wrong, right? In Tallahassee, foreign policy issues aren't central, right? So Ron DeSantis is coming, choosing to outline his foreign policy. And this is one of the first big things he's saying. And it's the venue that he chose to outline it on, right? He chose to give his opinion to Tucker Carlson, who's been aligned with Trump on shifting the Republican Party in this direction. So it's not just the announcement itself of his position, where he announced it and how he announced it and when he announced it, right? He's running for president at this point. But to try to enact your foreign policy vision, you have to become president. And to become president, you have to get GOP voters behind you in a primary. Could this not be just a very savvy move by him looking at how much Republican support for the ongoing level of funding, at least for the war in Ukraine, has dwindled significantly? I mean, he's absolutely aligning himself where he thinks the majority of the Republican Party electorate is. But that said, if you become president... And you don't want to, if you want to go back to his previous position, it's very hard to shift, right? If you said that Ukraine is not part of a vital national security interest for the United States, it's going to be hard to make the case if you become a president DeSantis to the Congress that you should be putting money into something that's not vital. Yeah. He left the door open a little bit. A little bit. Aid. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you, do you point out that Trump is, is the one who is following DeSantis lead on how, on talking about, uh, how he's talking about education? Yeah, you know, so I, I watched Trump's rally this weekend. It was ostensibly an education speech in, in Iowa. It was really just a Trump speech with, like, a little bit of education in the middle toward the end. Um, but it was interesting just to see how he is adopting some of the same language um, and some of the same sort of emphasis. You know, education has been one of the defining things that DeSantis I mean, not, on schools and CRT? On schools, and on critical race theory, on, you know, there was this moment in the rally where Trump is talking and he talks about critical race theory and he talks about transgender and the crowd just goes wild. And these rallies are this interesting two-way street where the crowd is, like, giving him feedback on what they really care about. And he pauses, and he literally, of course, he he reaches the stage cues. He takes it in. He says, wow, that was really a a loud moment. And you can see him hearing that this is what's motivating the base, which is something that I think DeSantis saw first. Yeah, it'll be fascinating how they try to distinguish themselves uh, on things like that because they do agree now on Ukraine, obviously, the education thing. Nikki Haley saying that DeSantis is just echoing Trump. Can we talk about George Santos for a moment, though, to switch gears completely? But you are based here in New York, and he has now filed for re-election. You don't think it's a sign that he's definitely running, but it's more of a a tool for fundraising. 
Yeah, it's basically a legal thing. If he wants to keep raising money to potentially run again, you got to file paperwork to say I'm legally running again. It also has the potential, as all these investigations are swirling, to be leveraged, right, with a prosecutor or like, what if That's I step so down? What if I don't run? Is there any possibility that like these are the kinds of things that you don't necessarily give up at the beginning of that process? But also, look, he's leaving the options open. But I also, you know, at this point, are we believing everything that George Santos <laughs> says? I'm not sure. I'm believing he's running for re-election just because he filed Why for election. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> but I'm um, saying, okay, before you go, though, for on a serious note, Biden on guns, making this speech again, trying to keep this at the forefront of Americans' minds and hearts, right? Um, he's pushed again for a renewal of the assault weapons ban. But is this, is this just a speech that will lead to no action in, in Congress? I mean, I don't think that there's any chance that there's movement on guns in a divided Congress. Um, look, Joe Biden got through the only bipartisan gun measure in years yeah. and years last year. And so I think this is a chance to remind people that he has tried to make a difference on that issue. Uh, it, the, the, the continuing shootings is a reminder that there isn't a difference yeah. that's been fully made. And yeah, he, he wants to go be out there and use this, the, whatever strength the bully pulpit has on that issue to tell people to and keep this, moving. The Supreme Court made it nearly impossible for states to really act unilaterally on on meaningful gun legislation without, like, a full national... It, it, it has to come through Congress. It has to, yeah. And we saw Biden yesterday. He was in Monterey Park. He was greeted by the, the hero of that shooting, right. Brandon Tsai. Um, Shane, thank you so much for joining us at the table this morning. Thanks for having me. I liked it. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, right, guns, less than a year after the racist mass shooting at a Topps supermarket in Buffalo, New York, a similar attack may have just been thwarted. We'll tell you about that. A scary report ahead. Also this, for some uplifting news this morning, the legendary Duke coach K opening up about his record-setting career and the importance of family, our one-on-one ahead. It's a pretty cool view. And whatever you walk in and you feel like you're in a field of dreams. This is your field of dreams. Yeah, well, you feel like I better get out of here because the basketball gods are going to play pickup here in a little bit. (laughs) Welcome back. This morning, we have an alarming new number for you that you're going to want to pay attention to. It is the number of Americans who are living with Alzheimer's disease. It's expected to, it's projected, I should say, to nearly double by the year 2050. That's according to a new report from the Alzheimer's Association. Joining us now with more on the explanation behind this is CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, this is a huge jump. There's obviously a lot of implications behind it. What is behind this new number? Why do they think it's going to be so large by 2050? So, Caitlin, what's behind this new number is just that the American population is aging. We're going to see many more people, 65 and plus, over the next couple of decades. So let's take a look at what this number looks like. 2023, 6.7 million people ages 65 plus in the United States with Alzheimer's dementia. By 2050, that jumps to 12.7 million. That is a huge jump in such a short period of time. We talk about the implications of this. We need more geriatricians in this country to help take care of these folks. We also need better treatments. There are two drugs out there that are quite new that try to that really sort of change the course of Alzheimer's, not just treat the symptoms, but actually get to the underlying biology. But there are a couple of issues. One, there's a lot of debate about exactly how well they work and there are some side effects. In addition, they are super expensive. There's an excellent chance that someone's insurance is not going to pay for them. So more drugs in the pipeline. Hopefully they will work well and hopefully they will not uh, cost a ton of money. Caitlin? 
Well, one of the things we also find interesting, Elizabeth, is that apparently many people don't alert their doctors early enough about some of the symptoms. Are they embarrassed isn't the right word, but like worried to even sort of admit it that this could be coming? So actually, Poppy, embarrassed might be the right word, right? You're sort of feeling like, gee, I keep forgetting things. That's sort of embarrassing. It means that I'm getting older. And also, I think people might take it for granted. That's what a lot of uh, experts say, is that people think, oh, I'm forgetting this and that. It's just that I'm getting older. Well, it may not be. It may actually really, truly be a sign of Alzheimer's. It is important to tell your doctor. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not because your doctor necessarily can give you a drug that your insurance will pay for and that will work well. But there are other things that you can do to try to stave off Alzheimer's as long as you can. You can talk to your doctor about that and you can plan for caregiving. Poppy? Okay. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you very much. It affects so many people. Yeah, you've read my mind. It's going to, um, it's tough. I've dealt with it in my family. I'm sure you guys have yeah. dealt with it in your yep. family. Is people fight it when you say, yes. wait, you just told me that. I remember my grandmother was going through it. She would drive over to our house. And then she'd go home and then she'd come back and she'd say, forget, well, she, was there. forget she was there. And, and but when there are so few solutions, right, and some of them that work may work a bit are so expensive, I think admitting it to your doctor is, yeah. with a lot, a lot of answers, is scary. But even admitting it to yourself and your yes, loved ones. Yes, and yourself. And very scary, yeah. So a newer, smarter chat GPT is here and it can ace the bar exam. We're going to wow. tell you about it next. Great, I can't wait to go to law school. <laughs> Also, hours from now, the former Trump fixer Michael Cohen is returning to testify before a Manhattan grand jury. This could be as Trump is about to get potentially indicted. All of this is about Trump's alleged role in hush money payments. We'll tell you what to expect. Uh, wow. This morning, a 20-year-old man is facing charges after police say he threatened a mass shooting at a Topps-friendly market in Manlius, New York, just outside of Syracuse. His threats were discovered on social media on the site Discord, the same site used by the man who shot and killed 10 people in a racist attack at a top supermarket in Buffalo last May. CNN's Bryn Gengrass joins us now with more on that. Good morning. How did they discover these So threats? triggering, right? I yes. mean, that area of New York, uh, seeing these on Discord, there were actually two people who were on that same channel who noticed these threats coming alive and called their local police department. I want to tick through some of the things that this person, 20-year-old Zachary Mullen, uh, was allegedly saying on this chat site, talking about, again, that grocery store tops, saying that it was going to happen next week and saying kills one to two. Also, some of the statements made on Discord were, had racist overtones talking about buying a KKK outfit, uh, becoming a legitimate racist, or should he do a mass killing? I mean, really awful things. And also kind of talking about the fact that he had just lost his father, who allegedly was an avid hunter, uh, and saying, is this a way that he can sort of remember his father by committing such an act? So this, of course, was Fantastic that these two people went to their local police department. It triggered the red flag laws in the state of New York. And so this person was arrested, Zachary Mullen, 20 years old. Uh, an extreme risk order of protection was issued, and uh, he was brought into custody. Here's the thing, though. He is no longer in custody because of the state's bail reform laws. He is now in the custody of his mother where he was living. The police department did go in there, removed all of the weapons, which they did find a shotgun. They did find oh, another wow. gun. Jeez. They found ammunition. Wow. Uh, so that 
that is all clear from the home, but the district attorney there, very conservative uh, district attorney, saying, you know, I don't know if you can get access to another gun here, sure. but that is the way the bail reform laws uh, are in place here in New York. Of course, we know that those have been so controversial in many elections, uh, both before they were enacted and yeah. now. Uh, but certainly uh, this is scary. But again, that is the law, but also the red flag laws. Well, I was just an example say, of how this works. It, red flag law worked. Exactly. Big deal. Yep. Right? Big deal. Brent, thank you. All right. Okay, also this morning, Facebook's parent company, Meta, is about to cut another 10,000 employees. That's the second round of layoff in just months. Our next guest is calling it the, quote, Elon effect. We are also following the latest developments on how a Russian jet forced down a U.S. drone over the Black Sea in moments. We'll be joined by the White House's John Kirby on what is likely to happen next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Facebook's parent company, Meta, will lay off another 10,000 workers. This is their second round of just huge layoffs in four months. It will draw down the company's workforce by about 25% since September. Our next guest says it goes beyond just Meta, calls this recent string of tech layoffs the Elon effect. Joining us now, CNN media analyst and Axios reporter Sarah Fisher. Elon Musk, you mean, who now runs Twitter. Um, do th is this an indication that these companies think Elon got it right, that they really overhired over the last few years and really have to slim down? I think so. I think a lot of pressure from Wall Street is forcing them to be more efficient. And to your point, Poppy, these companies did unprecedented hiring sprees during the pandemic. You know, Facebook's workforce swelled up to about 87,000 people. And so I think they're looking at what Elon Musk did, cutting that workforce from about 7,500 to a little over 1,000. And they're thinking, look, if Twitter can still function, I think there's room for us to cut. Now, I'm not saying that these companies should be going as far as Elon Musk. I mean, he's made such drastic cuts that there is now some pretty serious problems with the product. But I do think that they're looking at it and they're saying there is areas for us to be more efficient. With Mark Zuckerberg saying these cuts yesterday mean that faster is flatter, flatter is faster and leaner is better. That is the new mantra in Silicon Valley. I just don't know if it's safer. I mean, a lot of those cuts at Twitter came in, you know, some of the safety and monitoring departments. We got to talk about those here. Um, Chat GPT, it was already really sort of stunningly good at pretending to be human, and now it's going to be better at that? Oh, my gosh, Poppy, so much better at that. So the previous version of ChatGPT had about a 10% chance of passing the bar exam for lawyers. This new version that's being introduced today, ChatGPT 4, has about a 90% chance of passing the bar. It also can take images and output text. Now, Poppy, that's new. In the previous version, you could put in a text query or a question and get text back, but you couldn't use an image to get text back. And that's just a game changer for the use cases of this technology. You could take your phone and scan a picture of a sales presentation, and they could, within seconds, put out an output summarizing what that presentation said. Major implications for business, but to your point about safety, there's also a lot of challenges yeah. about what this means for misinformation. Of course. 90% passing the bar is better than the human rate that passes the bar exam on the first try. Oh, my God. Sarah Fisher, I'm terrified. Thank you. Thank you. Our coverage continues with five things you need to know this morning.
American Reaper drone was intercepted by two Russian fighters, was damaged, and then forced down. This all played out over international waters of the Black Sea. The Russian ambassador claiming that the Russians do not want confrontation with the United States. Clearly, this was inappropriate, unsafe, unprofessional conduct by the Russian pilots. The Justice Department launching an investigation into the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Clearly, the government is very interested in finding out what happened and making sure it doesn't happen again. Credit ratings firm Moody's has officially downgraded its outlook for the banking industry. We have to make sure people know that if they put money in a bank and they deposit it, it will be there in the morning for them. We didn't have snow all winter long, and now we've got the biggest storm of the year. An intense nor'easter is bringing heavy snow, winds, and coastal flooding across the northeast. We're still dealing with widespread power outages. Although it's not too bad right now, but we do expect that it's going to come back with a vengeance. Ron DeSantis drawing backlash from the establishment wing of his party after aligning himself with Trump on Ukraine. The Florida governor saying, quote, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. It's a misunderstanding of the situation. To say this doesn't matter is to say that war crimes don't matter. Quick story? Yeah. Okay, Jason. Well, all the stories. And one-on-one -on -one with the legendary Coach K. One of the things that I've learned about you is how hard you are on yourself. Sometimes there's nobody that holds the leader accountable. It was always not about winning and losing for me. It was about being worthy of winning. And good morning, everyone. We are covering a lot today. We begin with tensions on the rise after the Pentagon says a Russian fighter jet hit a U.S. spy drone and forced it to crash. Two Russian jets intercepted the drone over the Black Sea yesterday. The U.S. says one of them dumped fuel on the drone and then collided with its propeller, forcing the drone to go down. Vladimir Putin is about to make a public appearance in Moscow, and we're waiting to see if he weighs in on the incident. Following the crash, Russia's ambassador was summoned to the State Department. He claims there was no collision and that the drone crashed on its own. Here's what the White House had to say about that to our very own Jake Tapper. Well, it won't surprise you that we obviously refute the, the, the Russian denial. And I think anybody uh, after a year now, Jake, should take everything that the Russians say about what they're doing in and around Ukraine with a huge grain of salt. That was yesterday. And now National Security Council spokesman John Kirby will join us live to give us the latest developments this morning. We're also expecting to hear from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon in about an hour as he meets with allies about the war in Ukraine. Let's bring in now our chief anchor, our national security correspondent, uh, Jim Shudo. Jim, good morning to you. How significant right. is this U.S. drone takedown, and what are U.S. drones doing in the Black Sea region? To the first question, we're a year into the biggest war in Europe since World War II, with Russia on one side, of course, it invaded Ukraine, but the U.S. backing the other side. And both those countries, the U.S. and Russia, have taken great pains for that year to make sure that U.S. and Russian forces don't come into direct conflict. And yesterday, they did. Over the Black Sea here, granted a U.S. drone, but you have a Russian plane circling it, dumping fuel on it, eventually taking that U.S. aircraft down. And by the way, that's the second time in a month, keep in mind, six, seven weeks or so, where one superpower has taken down another superpower's aircraft. You, you had the U.S. shooting down a Chinese surveillance balloon after it traveled over the U.S., and now you have Russia taking down a U.S. surveillance aircraft. This is the world we're living in right now, and it's very dangerous. 
Yeah, it is very dangerous, mm. and it raises a lot of questions um, also about the surveillance aircrafts. They're flying yeah. around there. The Pentagon's not saying where this one came from, uh, yeah. but obviously, clearly, they are, they're out there monitoring grain deals, shipments, what that's all looking like. 100%. By the way, listen, this is not just happening here over the Black Sea around Ukraine. This is happening all over the world. You have U.S. surveillance aircraft flying all around China, both manned and unmanned. You have U.S. surveillance aircraft, as well as NATO and others, here with the war in Ukraine. Keep in mind, though, you also have Russia. It often flies its aircraft up here over Alaska, deliberately testing U.S. defenses. You'll see U.S. aircraft scrambled uh, in defense. That's a dangerous world because those are multiple opportunities to have interactions like we had yesterday over the Black Sea. Let's talk for a moment about what kinds of aircraft are flying. This is the Reaper drone. This is the one that was uh, taken down yesterday, one of the smaller unmanned aerial surveillance vehicles. But you got other ones flying all over the world. The Global Hawk, longer range one, also unmanned. Uh, this is one that the U.S. uses frequently around China. And this is the other issue, because a lot of these surveillance aircraft, they're not all drones. Some of them are manned. The P-8 Poseidon, uh, this flies both in Europe near Russian airspace, but also in Asia near Chinese airspace. That's got a crew. I've been on one of those. And of course, the concern is that the next interaction is not between Chinese and Russian aircraft and U.S. aircraft that are unmanned, but that it's manned and manned. We had that in 2001 when you had a Chinese jet hitting a U.S. jet over Hainan Island. You had dangers to U.S. crews. And when you have crews involved, that's where the danger of escalation gets, gets even worse. Also, Jim, this week you've got Chinese, Iranian, and Russian yeah. forces, uh, their armies and their navies, coming together for these joint mm -hmm. military drills. An obvious message they're trying to send here, yeah. right? And the latest in a series. It, yeah. it shows that, that China and Russia are partners to many degree, in many respects. You remember just before the, the war in Ukraine, they announced this no limits partnership between Russia and China. Fact is there have been limits to, to date at least. Uh, we do not believe, the US does not believe that China is arming Russia and Ukraine, but in a whole host of other ways, they are supporting each other and Iran as well. Remember it's, it's Iranian drones that have been coming into Ukraine to help Russia. There's talk of Russia helping Iran with its missile program. That's an alliance that, has allied against the U.S. and its partners. And, 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 and again, that's the new world we're living in here and one where there's an enormous amount of concern about how that could escalate. Jim Shudo, thank you very much, sir. Thanks. Moments from now, I'm going to speak with the White House, uh, John Kirby. Uh, he's going to join us to talk about this and more. There's also a lot of new fallout this morning over the sudden and stunning failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Take a look at stock futures right now. Yesterday, we did see bank stocks rebound. Uh, the market's broadly down a little bit here ahead of the open. Fears lingering that the recent banking turmoil could impact the broader economy. The Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission now both investigating the collapse of SVB, examining stock sales that the chief financial officers and others made there days before the collapse. Shareholders have also filed a class action lawsuit against the bank's parent company. Democrats on Capitol Hill have unveiled a new bill that would restore those banking regulations rolled back in a bipartisan bill back in 2018. It's a complicated issue. It sparked frustration and a lot of questions. We've tried to talk to about a lot of those here. One lawmaker was trying to calm concerns that people had about this over the weekend. He went on TikTok and explained what he had learned in this emergency congressional briefing that lawmakers had with Treasury officials. Democratic Congressman Jeff Jackson had this to say. We caught it early enough so that taxpayers won't have to pay. We can pass the bill on to the banks. 
as long as this panic stops here. You can be angry at all of this, so long as you know that your deposits at your bank are protected because the full weight of the federal government has decided they will be. You need to hear that, you need to know that it's true, and you need to share that message so that we can make sure this becomes a political debate and not a financial crisis. A concern that many people had. Joining us now is that lawmaker, Jeff Jackson of North Carolina. And Congressman, thank you for joining us this morning. Obviously, there's a lot of questions about what Congress is going to do here. Do you think that there should be congressional hearings? Yes, I think there should be congressional hearings. I think there will be congressional hearings. I think the purpose of those congressional hearings will be twofold. First, an accountability phase. You referenced stock sales by the CEO in the weeks before the bank collapsed. And the second is going to be to inform the regulatory response. You mentioned that Democrats had already filed a bill that was designed to reinstate some of the protections against this type of thing that were rolled back a few years ago. And I would be very surprised if that did not end up being a bipartisan effort at this point. You think so? You think that they could actually get that passed? Because we've heard from some of, I know progressives want to get that passed, but we've heard from some more moderate members, including Democrats who voted for it, who said they're not so sure yet that that actually would have made a difference here. I think what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that it probably would have made a difference. And I respect people who are going to give this a little time before they say what legislation they're going to support. But what I think you're going to see through the investigatory process is that when we rolled those protections back, there were capital requirements and liquidity protections that all of a sudden no longer applied to banks like Silicon Valley Bank. And we'll never be able to be 100% sure that it would have made a difference, but it looks like a major contributing factor. More importantly, if we're going to have regional banks going forward and protect against this type of systemic risk, a domino effect, you're gonna need these kinds of protections in place to give people confidence. Listen, obviously something needed to be done to, to help in this situation. We had Kevin O'Leary on the other day and others who are equating the administration's response to this as nationalizing the American banking system and fearing that the taxpayer is going to really bear the burden here of backstopping the banks. Is that a potential consequence of this, you think? No, that's not even close to accurate. We let the bank fail. All of the leaders of the bank are out of a job. The stockholders were wiped out. The bondholders were wiped out. The people that we backstopped were the depositors. And the only reason we backstopped the depositors was because if we didn't, it was looking like there was going to be a run on several other regional banks. And we backstopped the depositors with a fund that's funded by the banks, basically an insurance pool of funds. It's got about $100 billion in it. And what we said was, as long as this panic stops here, that fund will be more than enough to cover the backstop for the depositors at these two banks that failed. It is not at all uh, a nationalization or a bailout of the banks. It's completely different from 2008. Well, Congressman, it's not just Kevin O'Leary. I mean, uh, the former Deputy Treasury Secretary under the Clinton administration, uh, Roger Altman, said this to Caitlin on the program yesterday. Here he was. This is a breathtaking step, uh, which effectively nationalizes or federalizes the deposit base of the U.S. financial system. Now, uh, you can call it a bailout, you can call it something else, but it's, it's really absolutely profound. It's profound in that basically what the federal government is saying here to all depositors at all banks now is we will ensure whatever you put in the bank. And I think the moral hazard question becomes, 
does that mean that people don't assess the riskiness of where they're putting their money? I mean, we saw crypto, for example, soar on Monday after the market saw, well, the government's here. Well, it is true that it was a profound step and that it was the government stepping in and backstopping depositors, although to be clear, it was in the case of two specific banks. Although I think it's a realistic question at this point about are we going to take new steps to backstop depositors? Are we going to change our policy generally? I know Senator Mitt Romney had some comments to that effect. Look, we have to decide how we protect against systemic risk for regional banks, because it turns out there was a larger risk of a domino effect than we, than we knew even a week ago. And that is going to involve a serious conversation about is $250,000 the right threshold? That's right. what the federal government insures right now for depositors. Are we going to have to change that? will be a big part of the conversation. I mean, it would be stunning if the federal government were to say to another bank on the brink or collapsing, well, we did this for SVB and Signature. We're not going to do it for your depositors. I think this, that's the point is this indicates to everyone they're safe. Just let me ask you, Barney Frank, former Democratic congressman, one of the authors of Dodd-Frank, that legislation to protect against too big to fail banks, right? sat on the Signature Bank board, made $2.5 million in that capacity, and said that the government basically didn't need to fold Signature Bank. He said, quote, we were the ones they shot to encourage others to stay away from crypto. What do you think? I would disagree with his assessment of this. I respect his expertise, but I think there was a, a situation where that bank was flashing red. There were a number of other banks that were flashing red, according to the Treasury Department. And in that moment, you cannot risk a number of banks collapsing all at once because that's how a financial crisis begins. Erring on the side of caution is what you have no choice but to do in that mm -hmm. situation. So you fail the bank, you backstop all the depositors, and you stop the dominoes right then and there. Mm -hmm. Can I have you, Congressman, before we let you respond to what we're hearing from some Republicans on this, saying that because SVB was a woke bank, as people like James Comer, other Republicans are, are referring to it as, saying that was part of why they failed, not because they parked too much cash in these long-term Treasury bonds? Yeah, let's just address that. First of all, the investments that SVB lost money on weren't anything to do with social justice. They were to do with bonds. They were to do mainly with mortgage-backed securities. That's where they lost money and got into trouble. Second, in a moment of, I won't say national crisis, but extreme national tension, where the main concern is fear spreading, it really would help if our leaders were more serious in how they approach this. And throwing out labels like woke, just because they know that's going to rile up maybe 25% of the country mm -hmm. is a really unserious way to approach this and can only hurt the situation. We didn't get to see on camera, but his, he bowed his head and sighed when Caitlin was asking that question about the frustration. And Repu Republican former head of the FDIC, Sheila Baer, Congressman, uh, agrees with you. She said as much yesterday. So thank you very thank much. Thank you, Congressman. Appreciate it. Uh, tune in tonight, CNN Primetime, 9 p.m. Eastern Bank Bust. What is next for America's money? We'll speak with experts about how this happened, what it means for you and your bank ahead. All right, let's talk about the weather now. Now to the winter storm that's blasted and buried so much of the Northeast, some parts of New York and New England, waking up to three feet of snow. Winter weather alerts are set to start expiring this morning. You're looking now, this is Burlington, Vermont, and Plymouth, New Hampshire, Looks cold, <laughs> obviously. Senator Derek Van Dam is in Worcester, Massachusetts. 
where people are digging out from this nor'easter, uh, appropriately dressed. But man, now the cleanup. Yeah, quite, quite literally. I mean, look, you can see uh, residents from the city working to clean the streets and the sidewalks here. Some people, like in New York or Boston, think, hey, this was a bit of a dud nor'easter. You only got a trace of snow in New York, half an inch in Boston. But you can't say the same for places like Coleraine, Massachusetts, and Stony Creek, New York. They got clobbered with 36 inches. That's three feet of heavy, wet snow. So just like any nor'easter, this was a game of miles separating the biggest impacts from the smallest. Take a listen. The first nor'easter of the season hitting the northeast. With parts of New York, Massachusetts, and Vermont seeing over three feet of snowfall. From New Jersey up through Maine, this late season storm brought heavy snow, winds, and coastal flooding. It's a heavy, wet, it's not going to be fun to shovel. In Derry County, New Hampshire, a boy got stuck under a downed tree. For 19 minutes, firefighters and police officers used their bare hands, chainsaws, and shovels to free the child. The storm left cars stranded and downed trees in the streets. In Massachusetts, crews working to restore power in difficult conditions. Throughout the day Tuesday, hundreds of thousands throughout the Northeast experienced power outages from the late season snow. It's just crazy how it's like it comes so late this year. Hopefully this is the last snowstorm. It's really heavy, really heavy snow, heavier than usual. Moving it feels like, you know, it's a workout. In Worcester, Massachusetts, two to three inches of snow were falling every hour. In the Boston area, residents struggled on the roads. Whether good or bad, I have to go to work. It's been rough, very rough, you know. Parts of New York and New Jersey were both under a state of emergency. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, when they're saying it's a state of emergency, I'm like, uh-oh. So I think we got more than we expected so far. The New York State Department of Transportation doing what it can to keep the roads clear. Well, first of all, always keep an eye on the weather. Don't drive if you don't have to. When there's weather, you've got to give yourself time. Some people trying to remain in good spirits despite the difficult conditions. It's just amazing. In Jamaica, you don't have it. Now you have it. Just take it a plane. Quite beautiful. I'm alive in spirit and I love the snow. I love all the weather. We live in New England. Come on. This? Okay, so we like to refer to this in the weather community as heart attack snowfall because it is literally so heavy, so wet, and very difficult to shovel. It's kind of backbreaking. You got to be careful. Problem now is that this is stuck to the power lines and to the trees. And now that the wind has picked up on the backside of the nor'easter, the potential for more power outages still exist today. Don? Right. Derek Van Dam in a very snowy Worcester mass. Thank you, Derek. I'm get one of those hats. Yeah. <laughs> Looks good. All right, this morning we are tracking a major development that happened over the Black Sea yesterday. The White House called it reckless. We're gonna discuss where things stand now, whether or not the U.S. is any closer to recovering that drone, one like the one you see there after Russia forced it down. John Kirby is standing by. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this morning, the U.S. is demanding answers after a Russian fighter jet took down a U.S. Air Force drone, the Reaper drone, 
like the one you see here, was flying over international waters over the Black Sea when one of the Russian jets intentionally flew in front of and dumped fuel on it several times, according to U.S. military. Now, the aircraft then hit the propeller of the drone, prompting U.S. forces to bring the drone down in international waters. Let's discuss now. Joining us now is the White House National Security Council spokesperson, Mr. John Kirby. Uh, John Kirby, Rear Admiral, as a matter of fact. Thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us this morning. Yes, sir. Good to be with you. So I have to ask you first off, has the drone been recovered and what is the status? It has not been recovered, and I'm not sure that we're going to be able to recover it. I mean, the, uh, the, where it fell into the Black Sea, very, very deep water. Uh, so we're still assessing whether there can be any kind of recovery effort mounted. Uh, there, there may not be. Okay, so having said that, you said that the U.S. would do everything, every effort to protect our equities over there. Part of protecting the equity is uh, securing the data that may have been uh, on this drone. Has the U.S. been able to wipe the drone's data or destroy parts of it um, so that it is not useful to enemies, Russians? What, what, what I can tell you, Don, uh, without getting into too much detail here, is that we, we took steps to protect um, uh, information uh, and to protect, uh, uh, to, to minimize any effort by uh, any, anybody else uh, to, uh, to exploit that drone uh, for useful content. Okay, but you said, you're not saying for sure, you said you took steps to minimize so that others can't exploit, so that it's not foolproof. We, we did the best we could to minimize any, uh, any intelligence value that might come uh, from somebody else getting their hands on, on that drone. But others can get their hands on it, if possible. It's possible. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, can't, I, I certainly can't speak for uh, Russian efforts uh, or what they may or may not be trying to, to take off the surface of the water. Uh, I can just tell you that we're still assessing that situation ourselves. Has the U.S. learned more or understand why Russia took this down? We're saying that our military is saying that it was a deliberate effort. Russia is saying not. The ambassador to the U.S. says that it was uh, near the border. Is that an actual reason, the actual reason? It was in international airspace, flying over the Black Sea, international waters. Uh, it is not uncommon, and nor has it been since the beginning of this war, for us to have to have these kinds of flights, conduct these kinds of flights. Uh, and uh, it is also not uncommon for the Russians to try to intercept them, to try to harass them. Uh, this is the first time that it's ended up in this particular circumstance where a Russian pilot actually struck uh, the drone, causing us to have to, to bring it down. That's the first time that's happened, but it's not the first time uh, that they have intercepted or tried to harass these flights. Should we be more careful? Should the U.S. be more careful about flying in, in over these waters? The, the message that we delivered to the Russian ambassador is that they need to be more careful in flying in international airspace near uh, U.S. assets that are, again, flying in completely legal ways, uh, conducting uh, sub- missions in support of our national security interests. They're the ones that need to be more careful. He said, what if, you know, this happened over in New York or near New York City or near San Francisco? Is that a fair assessment? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, first of all, uh, they don't belong in Ukraine. Uh, secondly, uh, they certainly don't belong in Crimea. Uh, and we were flying, uh, again, uh, well uh, outside uh, of, of airspace that was, that's claimed by, uh, by Ukraine or any other country. Uh, the Black Sea doesn't belong to Russia. It belongs to many countries. And the United States has been operating there on the sea and in the air. Uh, and we're going to continue to operate, again, in complete accordance with international law. You told my colleague Jake Tapper yesterday that the incident could have led to miscalculations and escalations beyond Ukraine. That sounds 
ominous, as if there can be an escalation. What do you mean by that? What I mean is when you have a situation like this, uh, there, it does increase the risk of miscalculations, misunderstandings. Um, and the, the last thing that uh, we want Certainly the last thing that anybody should want is for this war in Ukraine to escalate to become something uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, to have this actually, you know, expand beyond that. And that's not only not going to be good for the people of Ukraine, it's not going to be good for the people of Europe or even around the world. Uh, we've been working very, very hard throughout the beginning of this conflict, Don, uh, to make sure uh, that it doesn't escalate into, into, into particularly into that area. And I think we can all understand how that would be that would be uh, absolutely uh, horrible. For everybody. I want to be clear about something I asked just moments ago, but saying Russia is denying that there was any physical contact between its aircraft and uh, the drone, again, saying it wasn't intentional. Is there intentional? Is there video of what happened? There, there was some imagery collected uh, uh, around the incident. We're still going through that video right now. Has there been any communication between Russian officials overnight? Uh, any have you opened up any communication channels? Have you spoken to them concerning this? Well, we brought the ambassador into the State Department yesterday here in Washington, D.C. We certainly conveyed a very direct message to him about our deep concerns over this reckless, unprofessional behavior by uh, Russian pilots. So, yes, we have communicated directly through diplomatic channels as appropriate with the Russian government. Uh, as you know, several Senate Republicans are criticizing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This is not his position on, on the war um, uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And listen, it's not just Republicans. It's very hawkish people in the Republican Party uh, saying it's not in the U.S. interest and, and it's more of a territorial dispute. But DeSantis is voicing the opinion of some Americans. Is the White House worried about the public's support of Ukraine for Ukraine at this point? We've been very grateful for the support that the American people have shown for our support to Ukraine. Certainly, we have uh, appreciated the bipartisan and bicameral support on Capitol Hill for going uh, going forward and supporting Ukraine. Just today, Secretary Austin is hosting yet another contact group meeting virtually from the Pentagon today, where he will meet with dozens of other allies and partners uh, to see what more we can do to help Ukraine in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, but the, the the support from the American people has uh, has been very very important, uh, and I think you heard uh, in Warsaw when, when President Biden gave that very, very stirring speech uh, and made it very clear what's at stake here. Uh, it's not just about Ukraine, although that is first and foremost what's on our minds, keeping the Ukraine safe, making it whole and independent and sovereign. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it is very well the cost and the blood and the treasure that it could cost the American people and our allies and partners. If Mr. Putin succeeds here, if we just back off and say, that's it, we're not going to support him anymore, where does it stop? What's Putin's next aim? What's his next goal? Uh, where, where next is he going to go? Uh, and the cost could be exorbitantly higher than it is right now. This morning, officials in Beijing say that Russia will hold joint military exercises with China and Iran in the Gulf of Oman through, um, through Sunday. Is the White House concerned about that? No. Look, uh, nations are, are uh, they conduct military training exercises. It's not the first time that the Russians and the Chinese have, uh, have trained together. Uh, so we're going to watch it. We'll monitor it, obviously, uh, to make sure that there's no threat uh, resulting from this training exercise to our national security interests of those are of our allies and partners in the region. Uh, but nations train. We do it all the time. Uh, we'll watch it as best we can. All right. John Kirby joining us from the White House. Law. John, always a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Good to be with you. You as well. Yeah, interesting to hear him say they may never recover that drone. Recover. Yeah, and that they, he said the words were uh, they're doing everything they can. They're taking steps to minimize people from exploiting it, but that's not a one hundred percent. Yeah, 
Yeah. Do you remember all the intelligence they got out of that Iranian drone that they were able to, that was downed? How, when they found all those U.S. components, et cetera. I mean, you can get a lot from these things. And it's interesting you say, because the, the Russian ambassador um, and the Russian spokesperson is comparing this. He's saying it's apples to oranges, saying flying over, you know, the, the Pacific or the Atlantic would be the equivalent of flying over the back Black Sea. Not the same thing. Also, Russia claims they're not at war in Ukraine. Too. Right, so, exactly. So there's that. Great interview. All right, also this morning we are tracking another close call on an airport runway. It's under investigation for this. Oh, you're not 2003. Scan the takeoff clearance. Boarding takeoff. Boarding takeoff, United 2003. It feels like we're seeing these every day. What is happening? The federal aviation officials, they are hoping to figure that out. There's a hearing on Capitol Hill. Happening this morning, the FAA is going to hold an emergency safety summit as the agency is now investigating its seventh near miss of commercial airplanes on the runway. The latest one just happened at last week at Reagan National Airport in Arlington, Virginia. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Muntean joins us now. Pete, I'm flying into Reagan in just a few hours from now. This is now the seventh incident just this year alone. We're only in March. Yeah, Caitlin, you know, this underscores just how serious this problem is. And this safety summit that the FAA is holding today is the first it has had since 2009. That was after a fatal crash. In this latest string of incidents, nobody has been killed, but the FAA says simply not waiting for catastrophe. It is a runaway problem on America's runways, from Hawaii to the latest incident at Reagan National Airport outside Washington, D.C. Oh, you're not 2003. Scan the takeoff clearance. Reporting takeoff. Reporting takeoff, United 2003. Today, the Federal Aviation Administration is holding an emergency safety summit, bringing together Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, airlines, investigators, and regulators. It follows seven so-called runway incursions involving commercial airliners since the start of this year, an issue that landed on Capitol Hill last week. The numerous recent near misses by airlines just this year are very troubling. It was the latest grilling for FAA Acting Administrator Billy Nolan, who insisted to lawmakers and passengers that flying is safe. In announcing the summit, Nolan said the FAA will examine which mitigations are working and why others appear to not be as effective as they once were. The FAA absolutely has a grasp on this situation, and it's something that we look at every day. Also in the meeting, representatives from airline unions. American Airlines Captain Dennis Tager says no meeting is necessary to know airlines are stressed to the max, still struggling to bounce back from the pandemic. The data is right behind me. It's happening out there. These incidents, things that we've been talking about well over a year ago, are starting to show up on the flight deck and in operations. So far, the FAA sees no apparent common cause of these incidents, a top concern for the National Transportation Transportation Safety Board. Just because we are the safest in the world doesn't mean that we'll continue. It only takes one, one serious tragedy to change all of that. The NTSB says it is aware, but not yet launching an investigation into this latest incident at Reagan National Airport. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg just sent a letter to all participants of today's meeting saying we must identify the key risk factors and common causes of these incidents right now. Caitlin? Yeah, I think a lot of people want those answers. Pete Muntean, thank you. 
On CNN primetime this week, we're going to get a closer look at all of America's aviation problems. You just heard from Pete there. We're going to hear from passengers, flight crew members, and aviation experts. That's tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Kate Baldwin is going to host Flight Risk, Turbulent Times for Air Travel. 42 seasons, five national championships, and more than 1,000 wins. If you don't like Duke basketball, don't watch What's Next. I sat down with the legendary Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski to talk about his journey and what it's like not to be on the sidelines for the first time. You know a quick story? Yeah, okay, I Jason. want all the stories. There are legends in basketball so famous you know them by one name, Jordan, Kobe, LeBron. And then there's a legend whose status is so iconic you know him by one letter, K, as in Coach K. For 42 seasons, Mike Krzyzewski served as the head coach for the Duke Blue Devils. He won 1,129 games at Duke, including five national championships. So I went down to North Carolina to sit with him to talk about leadership ahead of his first March Madness since retirement and got some coaching wisdom. And also he told me what is more important than winning. It's a pretty cool view. And, yeah. you know, all the banners and... That's all your national championships. The five, yeah, and then Final Fours and ACC championships. You're often described by people in profiles of you as the son of a cleaning woman and an elevator operator. But I don't think that's how you would describe your parents. No, my parents were the basis of who me and my brother became. They taught us the dignity of work. You know, I even tell my teams for years, I want you to be as tough as your mother. And just think about your mother. Was there ever a day that she didn't show up? Did you ever see her sick? Did you ever see her tired? I never saw my mom sick or tired. I saw her every day doing everything that she could possibly do to make it nice for me and my brother Bill. I didn't appreciate it until later in life. And my dad died when I was a senior at West Point. He didn't go by the name Krzyzewski, he went by the name Cross because he was always afraid of losing his job because there's a lot of ethnic discrimination at that time. I didn't realize all the things that my parents gave up, gave up, hid. Your parents didn't even want you guys to learn to speak Polish. Polish, right. Why? And I didn't find out this until later. They didn't want us to have an accent because they were afraid, again, during that time, somebody with a vowel at the end of their name may have been looked at differently. They were concerned. They were trying to protect you. They were trying to protect me and my brother. So much so it wasn't on his tombstone until... Yeah, he was in World War II as William Cross. And so when he died, and we, you know, a low-income family, the government provides a tombstone that said Cross. And uh, we weren't able to change that until my mom passed. And then my brother and I made sure it said Krzyzewski. You know, I was fortunate to be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame in 2001. And one of the parts of the speech, and probably the most emotional for me was, I said, I wish my mom and dad were here tonight. I'm going to start crying. Uh, to see a Krzyzewski going to the Hall of Fame. It was emotional then, it's emotional now, because I recognize just the, the life they led to make sure me and Bill would be 
taken care of. Amazing. How much of what you've done and how you've led and carried on this name so proudly? It's so famous. I just walked in the Shashevsky Center. <laughs> they couldn't find another name for it, so they, yeah, they put one that no one could pronounce. I love this picture. Yeah, that's, uh, you well, can tell she's proud. proud. I've been married 53 years to Mickey, and we knew that it was going to be a partnership. I call it two is better than one if two can act as one. And we were able to act as one. That's my family. Whenever we played in the Olympics, we brought everybody. You did. You yeah. did a lot of it all together. Yeah. They have three daughters. They hold you down They, they have whatever humility I did not have, they tried to interject <laughs> in me over and over. So when there used to be family dinners yeah. and people would eat together, uh, and I'd be sitting at a table with my four girls and, and we're playing Carolina or we Maryland or whatever. We just won a big game. And we're talking and nothing is said. About your win? Or about the game. My <laughs> wife did a great thing, Poppy. When all my girls were growing up, we never had anything basketball in the house. The players would come over at times, but there weren't trophies, pictures. There was no shrine to Coach no. K in your house. There's, there's no shrine, <laughs> and, and there shouldn't be, you know. Uh, well, there yeah. are in some people's houses. Yeah, now, because it's just me and Mickey and our dog, Coach. There is a shrine? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm in a basement office, well, the lower level boss, uh, yeah. and I can put anything I want in there. So uh, whenever I need my ego boost, I go down there and start <laughs> okay. looking. Say, Man, you were really good. No, I don't do that. Do you ever come stand here alone? I do, usually, uh, not a lot, but later at night when all the lights are out and there might be just a little bit on the national championship banners or whatever, you walk in and you feel like you're in a field of dreams. This is your field of dreams? Yeah, well, you feel like I better get out of here because the basketball gods are gonna play pickup here in a little <laughs> bit. There are stars, there are star players, but we've seen in college basketball, in the NBA, that when you just put a bunch of stars together, it often doesn't work. You heard that expression, leave your egos at the door. I hate that expression. You do? I hate it. Bring I, your ego? Bring everything you got. Bring who you are. Why wouldn't you bring, why would you leave something you are? To make room for others? No, no, we should make the room bigger. You know, you're not confined by the room. And when you bring all the ego, egos in, put them under one umbrella. That's what we did for you. And it was said USA on it. And then you develop uh, common ground. Quick, you know, a quick story? Yeah, okay, I Jason, want all the stories. Jason Kidd, first practice, our captain, Hall of Famer, leading a fast break drill. Dwayne Wade's in one lane, LeBron's in another, and the ball's going everywhere. So I bring them together, like I know we can't play like this. And before I say anything, Jay Kidd says, Coach, I'll tone it down. And immediately Kobe, LeBron, Dwayne said, no, no, no. We've never played with, you, with a talent like you. We'll adapt to you. Really? Yes. It was one of the great moments in my coaching career where I saw talent say, come on, talent. Give me more. Yeah. It's like the piano player telling the sax player, come on, go. I can play the piano better. You know, singer, you know, and all of a sudden, if you can get everyone playing with all their talent, why wouldn't you want 
talent to maximize. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, and and it doesn't mean you have to give up talent to maximize. And if all that works together, wow. How many presidents have you met? Yeah. All of them all in of your them. lifetime? Yeah. The wow. who were in when we won. Yeah. And uh, 41, President Bush became a close friend. This is you it? and Kobe. Yeah, this is U.S. Thanks for all the golden moments. Mm. This is a, a great book for me because each player uh, gave their quote. So can we read what LeBron said about yeah, you? Yeah. He allows us to play the game of basketball and just go out there and have fun. But at the same time, he wants us to be perfect. We should expect perfection, and that is what he is about. We like that, we like that kind of challenge. Yeah. Read the last line Kobe said about you. Coach K is one of the best coaches of all time, period, no question about it. One of the things that I've learned about you is how hard you are on yourself. And that there have been moments when you'll actually, you've looked in the mirror over your career and cursed yourself out. We're all better if we're held accountable, you know, and how you hold players accountable along the years change, but you still have to hold them accountable. You've been tough on them, very. Yeah. Well, you hold them accountable. And sometimes there's nobody that holds the leader accountable. It's on you, it's I did it, you know, I need to change. And it was always not about winning and losing for me, it was about being worthy of winning. That was great, Poppy. You did, he's I, great. I know he's great, but you did a fantastic oh, job. I can tell he you. likes you and pulling it out of you. Um, so can I just, we talked about this. Leave your egos at the door. He doesn't like that. He doesn't, and I don't believe that either. I think and when people always say, you have a big ego, Poppy has a big ego. I was like, great, Poppy has earned the right really? to have I, it. Well, I mean, I'm just I saying. I never I, thought that way, and he changed yeah. my way of thinking. I'm just saying in general, people yeah. will say that, and people will try to dim the brightness of the strongest player so that it fits everyone else. And that is the wrong thing to do. You encourage everyone. everyone to, the strongest player, to lift everyone up. That has always been my motto. And so uh, it's great to have to, to that reinforcement. Um, leave your egos at the door of the wrong thing. I thought it was fantastic. And, and we'll say, get to the dog thing in a second. But uh, I was even, That wasn't even where, where I was going to go. But I was going to say, I mean, this is no secret about me. I often think that some of the wisest people in our current society yeah. are often coaches yep. because they're not just coming up with play calls and depth yes. charts. They're coaching and shaping young, young men and women into what they are. I mean, obviously, I think Nick Saban is a big part of this, but hearing him talk about the mentality of that and maximizing talent and, and making people be their yeah. best, saying, bring everything you got. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've taught me that on this show about coaches, and I've had a you know, friendship with Coach K for a few years, and I don't know a lot about basketball. You guys know that, but I wanted to talk to him because of the way he leads, and he made me think differently about how I operate. That's how significant hearing from him was. Because it applies to you, even. Yeah. Not it applies just to me, it applies player. to all, all of us. us. It is, that is a leader. When a, when the when best. That is a leader the when a leader can bring a team together and bring out the strongest attributes and know like when people are playing out of position and when they're in position. But I, I didn't think that's where you were going, but I, you and I both perked up when, he had, when we heard his dog was named Coach. I'm like, that's a great name. And you said, do you want to name your dog Coach? I literally texted my dad that. I said, <laughs> when I get a dog eventually, probably in like 50 years, I'm going to name I'll, it Coach. Just I'll, leave. And I'll name mine Put Me In. I'll just It'll leave be, it. Put at, Me In, Coach. I'll just <laughs> leave it at park. this. Yeah. What he has done for the Krzyzewski name, his parents would be very very proud. 
More news to cover now. Major financial news, as a matter of fact, this morning. Stock futures plummeting down more than 500 points right now. New fears being injected into the global banking system as a deal around Credit Suisse falls through. We're going to break it all down next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So Donald Trump's former attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, expected to go back before a Manhattan grand jury today and finish answering questions about hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Cohen testified for about three hours Monday. He handled the payments to the adult film actress before the 2016 election. The DA is investigating Trump's alleged role in those payments. Prosecutors are signaling that a criminal indictment for Trump could be near. Sinan's Kara Scannell joins us now uh, with what we're expecting to hear today. So, good morning. What would a... What are we expecting today? Yeah, good morning, guys. So today, Michael Cohen will be back before the grand jury. As you said, he was there on Monday for three hours. And you know, just remember, he was such a central player in these hush money payments. So he will be explaining to the grand jury his communications with the former president. You know, remember, he pleaded guilty to a federal case in which he said that Trump had he made these payments in coordination with and at the direction of Donald Trump. So, you know, he can put the jury in the room and lay out what his version of the case and and what he knows about this, Um, you know, so it's certainly a significant witness and what seems to be, given the parade of witnesses that have been in, one of the last that will be going before the grand jury. All right, and we'll be paying, we'll be watching. Kara, we'll be covering it. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Kara Scannell. CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. We are glad you're with us this morning. We are following breaking news on Wall Street. Stock futures are plunging as turmoil continues for banks across the globe. Shares of Credit Suisse falling more than 20 percent pre-market, a new record low after the Saudi National Bank said it would not be injecting new capital into Credit Suisse. That is because of regulatory barriers, I should note, though. But this is all just injecting new fear into the global banking system. All this in the wake of two U.S. bank failures, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Let's bring in Chief Business Correspondent Christine Romans for more. Uh, What's happening with Credit Suisse is different, but it's all spooking the market. It is. And so this is European banking fears that are now spreading back into an already fragile and vulnerable uh, U.S. system. Credit Suisse, as you pointed out, Poppy, down 20 percent to a record low. And you've got several European bank shares that are actually halted in European trading. So, again, that's just feeding into this worry about rising interest rates and fragility in banking around the world. You've got Dow futures down one and a half percent. This would if this holds today, this would take away the rally from yesterday. Nasdaq futures, S&P 500 futures are also lower here. And when you look at some of those regional banks that bounced back in the U.S. yesterday, that was a sign of stability, a sign of relief. Kind of a mixed performance here. First Republic shares in pre-market trading are up a little bit, but some of these other banks um, are down. And again, what what folks are really zeroing in here is uh, what are the exposure to these banks, to these long-term treasuries and long-term securities that are going to be hard to sell uh, in the near term? And do they have customers with deposits who are going to be trying to walk away? Uh, I wanted to also bring up, you and I have been talking offline, Poppy and I, about Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, who has his annual letter to shareholders out this morning. And Poppy, he talked about this era of easy money that's over and the consequences, the dominoes that might be falling. He says this. He said, we don't yet know whether the consequences of easy money and regulatory changes will cascade throughout the U.S. regional banking sector akin to the SNL crisis 
I do not like to hear that, with more seizures and shutdowns coming. Again, after that, uh, that regulatory or the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury this weekend taking extreme measures to shore up depositors and let the couple of banks fail, um, there are concerns about what other weaknesses there might be in the overall strong banking system, but there might be pockets of weakness, you guys. So we're looking at futures now, and the market's open here in just, uh, just over an hour. They've halted European banks. Could that happen here in the U.S.? I don't think you're going to see moves like that this morning here. I'm just showing you those regional bank stocks. Those are down just a little bit. And, and I should note that Dow is down 500 points. That sounds like a lot. It's not even 2%. Right. Um, you know, so that, that is, you know, within kind of the margin of, you know, a rough but a normal kind of, uh, of sell-off. Well, look, when you have Larry Fink, one of the most listened to voices on Wall Street, uh, saying anything could be akin to the savings and loan crisis, people really... Listen, thank you, Christine. You're welcome. Christine Romans with our breaking news this morning. Stock futures plunging as this turmoil is continuing. Uh, futures down, what is it, 500 points a down yeah. now. They said it's just less than 2%, yeah. but something to watch. But they For don't sure. think that they're going to halt um, U.S. banking. Caitlin. Also this morning, we are tracking a huge international development as tensions between the United States and Russia are flaring after the Pentagon says a Russian fighter jet forced down a U.S. Air Force drone. The U.S. Reaper drone, like the one you see here, was flying over international waters in the Black Sea when one of the Russian jets intentionally flew in front of it, dumped fuel on it several times, according to the Pentagon. The aircraft then hit the propeller of the drone, forcing the U.S. to bring it down. The White House says it may never be recovered. Has the drone been recovered and what is the status? It has not been recovered, and I'm not sure that we're going to be able to recover it. I mean, the, uh, the, where it fell into the Black Sea, very, very deep water. Uh, so we're still assessing whether there can be any kind of recovery effort mounted. Uh, there, there may not be. We took steps to protect um, uh, information uh, and to protect, uh, uh, to, to minimize any effort by uh, any, anybody else uh, to, uh, to exploit that drone uh, for useful content. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham saying this is how the U.S. should have responded. Well, we should hold them accountable and say that if you ever get near another uh, U.S. set flying in international waters, your airplane would be shot down. What would Ronald Reagan do right now? He would, he would start shooting Russian planes down if they were threatening our assets. Joining us now is Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York, who serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee and is also on the Financial Services Committee. If we can't, if the U.S. cannot recover this drone, what are the implications of that? Well, obviously, it is a very uh, precarious situation. Uh, and Russian aggression, uh, not just in Ukraine, but in the region, uh, is a problem. And so I think, you know, the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, once again violated international law uh, and international order, he needs to be held accountable. And I think there are uh, serious consequences. You look between this and the, the Chinese spy balloon that traversed the entire United States. Uh, our enemies are, are provoking us and they are uh, challenging us uh, in ways that we haven't seen in a, in a while. And I think the Biden administration uh, needs to be very firm and resolute in dealing with them. Uh, these are challenging times and we need to take it seriously. What should that accountability look like? You heard what Lindsey Graham said there. I don't disagree with what Lindsey Graham said. I mean, the, the, really? bottom, uh, the bottom line is if you are in international uh, airspace and you are being uh, provoked and, and the uh, Russian military is taking aggressive action, uh, then we need to take that seriously. And we should not be having our, our drones uh, or military equipment 
uh, either shot down or, or forced down, uh, that is a serious provocation, just like it was uh, a few weeks ago with the Chinese spy balloon. So I, I, I think the Biden administration needs to recognize that that we are being challenged and and they need to take it uh, seriously. They need to uh, respond in a way uh, that makes it very clear uh, that we will not stand idly by uh, when either Russia or China uh, or North Korea uh, shooting missiles off. Uh, We are not gonna stand idly by and watch this happen. You've got a new resolution coming out today on Ukraine. What What exactly does it say? Well, obviously, the the war in Ukraine now has been going on uh, for over a year. And this resolution uh, introduced by uh, Chairman Tom uh, Kane from New Jersey, uh, the subcommittee chair on Europe, of which I serve, uh, it it reaffirms our support uh, for uh, Ukraine and the the people of Ukraine. Uh, It condemns Russian war crimes. It condemns uh, you know, uh, the behavior by Vladimir Putin and really calls on Russia to recognize uh, the sovereignty of Ukraine. And it calls on our allies to uh, join us in increasing our support uh, and making sure that we provide uh, the weaponry needed uh, so that Ukraine can uh, reclaim its sovereignty. Given that new resolution today, we heard from Governor Ron DeSantis. He said he doesn't think defending Ukraine is a vital U.S. interest. Do you agree with him? No, I don't. Uh, I think... Uh, The bottom line here is this. Vladimir Putin uh, is a vile thug and dictator, uh, and his conduct in uh, this war is atrocious, uh, and he needs to be held accountable. And if, you know, I've said this many times, my wife is from Moldova. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her family lives on the Ukraine border about 30 miles uh, from an area called Transnistria, which is Russian-occupied. And the bottom line here is this. If Vladimir Putin is successful in Ukraine, uh, he absolutely will be going to Moldova and other countries uh, that were formerly Soviet satellite states next. And that cannot happen. It is not in the interest of the United States or our allies in Europe uh, for that to happen. And when you look at Russian aggression in Ukraine, we must also look at what China is doing with respect to Taiwan. And if Ukraine falls and we do not act, Uh, that will give the Chinese a clear indication that they can do what they want with Taiwan. That is unacceptable. When he refers to it as a territorial dispute, do you think he's minimizing what's happening? Look, I'll let him speak for himself, but to me, this is not a territorial dispute. This is an invasion uh, by Russia uh, in violation of international law uh, and in violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. Uh, And, you know, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear power in 1994... We entered into a treaty. We have an obligation to fulfill that commitment. Uh, And I just, in my opinion, uh, we are dealing with a new axis of evil between Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. uh, And we need to take those threats seriously. We're seeing provocations by China, by Russia. uh, And the United States, uh, it very much is in our interest uh, to uh, support Ukraine. Your view on that is very clear, but I do want to push back because it's not just Governor DeSantis. Former President Trump feels this way, too. Together, they've got a pretty broad swath of support in the Republican Party. Are you worried about how long the Republican Party is behind supporting Ukraine at the level we are now? No, when I talk to my colleagues in Washington, um, you know, everybody agrees there needs to be transparency. There needs to be accountability with how the funds are being spent. Uh, But the bottom line is this. You cannot allow uh, Vladimir Putin to succeed here. And so, uh, frankly, I think the Biden administration needs to ramp up 
the, uh, the weaponry that it is providing and do it expeditiously uh, so that Ukraine can uh, secure back its sovereignty and this war can come to an end. You're also on the Financial Services Committee. Do you want congressional hearings on the collapse of SVB? Yes. Uh, I think, you know, I, I think the Biden administration moved uh, expeditiously. Uh, the, the Treasury Secretary, the Fed, uh, and the FDIC had the tools needed to do uh, uh, what was required in the short term. But I think we need to evaluate what occurred, why, uh, and, and make sure that it doesn't happen again. We have to ensure that we don't have contagion. Uh, and that you do not have a run on these uh, on these small community banks uh, and regional banks, because that would obviously be disastrous for the economy. Some of your Republican colleagues are saying it's because of the diversity policies that this bank had that that contributed to their collapse. Is that what you think is behind it? Or do you think it's because of uh, the other steps that they were taking, the policies they were pursuing when it came to the Treasury backed bonds? Well, I think Clearly, this bank was mismanaged, uh, SVB. Uh, but uh, beyond that, obviously, you had a situation with the long-term Treasury notes uh, and the fact that you know we're dealing with record inflation, interest rates went up, the value came down on these long-term Treasuries. I do think when we're talking about ESG and, and some of the policy decisions that are being made uh, in corporate America and, and, and on Wall Street, uh, I do think that has an impact on the bottom dollar, uh, and people need to take into account uh, your number one fiduciary responsibility is to obviously maximize profit and ensure the, the sustainability and viability of your, of your entities. Yeah, so but J.P. Morgan and they, other banks have those DEI policies. They didn't collapse. Look, there's, there's all not, different levels here that we're talking about. You could say it's not about. the cause of the no, but, collapse, right? Uh, but I didn't say it was the cause. I, what I'm saying to you... I talked about, obviously, the long-term Treasury. Yeah. There's all sorts of policies that are being enacted in corporate America and by the Biden administration. This is why we passed uh, you know, a resolution uh, just a few weeks ago on ESG. You, the, the number one responsibility of any uh, bank or uh, corporate entity is to ensure the fiduciary uh, viability and, and the long-term sustainability of that, that company. And sometimes the policies that are being enacted uh, are, are actually having a detrimental effect on that bottom dollar. So that's something that to be looked at. To me, in this instance, that's not the root cause here. Uh, but it is something that we are going to look at uh, going forward as uh, Financial Services Committee will reconvene. Yeah, well, stay tuned to those hearings. Congressman, thank you for joining us here on yep. set today. We want to get now to the brutal, relentless storm clobbering California. Parts of that state have broken daily records as the rain keeps falling. Most of California is under a state of emergency right now. But it's not heavy rain doing the damage. It's high winds. Look at this. And I started to tell him it looks like it's leaning. There it goes. There it goes. Oh, my God. Oh. Anyway, there goes my neighbor's house. Wow. Oh, my God, it's right. Thankfully, no one that was home, no one injured there, no injuries to report. Let's get straight to CNN's Natasha Chen, who is in uh, reporting to us from Ventura about an hour outside of Los Angeles. I would say, Natasha, what are you seeing on the ground? But you're not seeing much ground there. It's flooded. 
Absolutely. I'm standing about ankle deep here, but it's really a lot deeper behind me. Uh, the rain just let up in the past hour after a continuous about 16 hours of rain that we saw since yesterday. And you can see back here, this is a neighborhood that has been flooded since the January storms. An example of how some Californians just can't catch a break with storm after storm. This is the 11th atmospheric river that they've experienced in this state. Uh, you can see the slowdown kids playing soccer but really all we've seen this morning are some ducks swimming by. Another problem in another part of the state, especially in the foothills, the mountains, is with unusually heavy snowpack causing heavy weight on those rooftops and now mixing with the rain. Those are causing some structural collapses. Here's a first responder talking about that. It does affect us in the fact that uh, the rain making the snow wetter snow is going to increase the weight that we're seeing on these roofs. It also brings in uh, the water component. We are swift water capable, so we're kind of mentally preparing and also uh, equipment-wise preparing for any sort of swift water incidents that we might have up here. There are a couple of swift water rescue teams that were pre-positioned here in Ventura County. Thankfully, we've heard they didn't have too many incidents overnight. Now, Californians are bracing themselves for yet another atmospheric river coming next week. All of this, though, all of this moisture could be good news for the wildfire season. Uh, fire, uh, the fire department public information officer told me that means that there's going to be a lot of green and less of that dry brush uh, when the fire season comes around, Don. But no break from the bad weather, from the rain as of yet. Thank you, Natasha Chen. Well, this morning, a reparations plan is on the table in San Francisco ahead. What it includes, it's millions and millions of dollars and whether it could pass in one of America's biggest cities. And in less than two hours from now, a critical hearing on access to the abortion pill is going to get underway. What it could mean for abortion rights nationwide. We are live in Texas. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, a Trump-appointed judge in Texas will hold a high-stakes hearing on whether to overturn the FDA's approval of the abortion pill. This would be the most consequential abortion case ruling since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That judge also says the court has received a, quote, barrage of death threats. This is 14 Democratic governors wrote a letter asking several national pharmacies if they plan to continue dispensing the abortion pill after that ruling. Rosa Flores is live in Amarillo, Texas. Rosa, good morning. Judge Kaczmarek has a lot on his plate today with national consequences. A lot, definitely. As you mentioned, Poppy, this is the largest legal battle involving abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer. And let me take you through what's going to happen today. Uh, today, there is an injunction hearing in which the plaintiffs, who are a coalition of anti-abortion groups, they're asking this judge to block me, uh, the FDA approval, <clears throat> excuse me, of mefeprestone. This is an abortion drug. Now, the plaintiffs argue that this drug is not safe, uh, saying that the approval process was flawed. And the FDA, of course, disagrees with this. Now, there's so much controversy regarding this, and this is so unprecedented because if this judge rules in the plaintiff's favor, that would mean that a judge who's not a subject matter expert would be telling the FDA, who are subject matter experts, who are using science, and by the way, Congress entrusts them in approving drugs for the American public, 
this judge would be telling them what to do, which raises so many questions about what happens after that. Like, how does a judge even begin to do that? Because the FDA has processes, procedures, protocols to be able to uh, remove drugs from the shelf. Now, um, one of the things that I want to mention is right now it's still dark. We are expecting a protest later today. I talked to the organizers, it's the Women's March, and their concern is, if we start with limiting drugs and overturning approvals of the FDA regarding abortion, does it stop there? Take a listen. It is an attack on our public health system. Where does that stop? If we start with mifepristone, does it stop at Plan B? Does it stop at birth control? Does it stop at PrEP? Does it stop at, you know, other drugs? Now, one of the big questions, of course, is could the judge rule from the bench today? We don't know. It, could he do it? Of course. But it is probably unlikely, Poppy, given the fact that he was very concerned about uh, a barrage of threats that he mentioned. There was a lot of secrecy surrounding this this hearing. And um, but we'll be here. We'll see what actually happens um, uh, once this hearing starts. Poppy, back to you. Rosa, thank you. We're glad you're there. A lot. The nation's attention, frankly, on that courthouse today and that judge. Thanks very much. Let's talk about San Francisco. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors unanimously adopting a draft reparations plan that includes a one-time $5 million payment to each eligible black person and more than 100 other recommendations. It comes as a city seeks to make amends for centuries of slavery and systemic racism. During a more than five-hour hearing, supporters explain what the plan would mean to the city's black community. My dad always taught me never to beg. And I'm not begging you today, but I am telling you, when my parents migrated here from Louisiana to San Francisco, it was for a hope and a dream that they would be treated fairly and equally. And for them to have had to witness the racial disparity that I received in this city as a peace officer was absolutely atrocious. It is time for you to do the right thing and provide us with the reparations. The overwhelming support for the draft plan does not mean all the recommendations will ultimately be adopted. A final proposal due in June. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Next, we will speak to a tech journalist who's been covering the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank while also trying to get our company's money out of the bank. And something everyone's watching, fresh data on inflation and retail sales. How does it tie into all of this? Christine Romans will be back on set in just a moment. All right, as you can see here, we are keeping an eye closely on the Dow futures ahead of the opening bell, now down more than 500 points. We're going to keep watching those and updating you. Meanwhile, businesses that used Silicon Valley Bank, known as SVB now, have had a pretty rough ride in the days since the bank's sudden collapse. Among them, a publication that covers tech in the business world called The Information. The Information's founder and CEO tweeted over the weekend saying, quote, this is by far the most insane experience of my professional life in real time, helping the team lead and serve readers while also staying up at night, moving money, settling up accounts and more. Joining us now to talk about her insane professional life experience uh, with the collapse of SVB is the information's founder and CEO, Jessica Lesson. Jess, thank you so much for being here. I mean, 
This is remarkable that you're in this moment where you guys are covering this, but you're also trying to figure out how are these people going to get paid? What is going to happen with, with your finances? You know, like I think they call it a front row seat, and um, <laughs> we certainly have one. I mean, our team of reporters in New York and San Francisco have been breaking news on this um, since before the closure of the bank. We're the first to really get inside the reaction and concern in Silicon Valley. And um, yeah, that's also been a trigger to make sure that our company is in good shape, and I've been working hard on that. How did you balance? This was reported in The Atlantic um, uh, in this interview that our former colleague Brian Selter did with you, you. How did you balance dealing with your money at SVB, the company's money, what you were hearing about from VCs about pulling out, and then reporting on it? Because as I understand it, you know, you guys made efforts to pull out some of your money before you reported on it and how you thought about sort of what do I say? When do I say it? When is it verified versus am I acting as a CEO because of what I'm hearing in my gut instinct? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and we, we actually didn't pull our money out before we reported on it, but I was certainly paying attention to the sure. situation. You know, I, I think it's about what's news. What are facts? What do we confirm? You know, the information we don't peddle in speculation, but we look for reaction. What are founders doing? And when the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank held a secret phone call with venture capitalists and told them to stay calm as we broke, that was news to us. And so that was our first piece. Luckily, we have an amazing team at the information on the business and news side. So we, we could multitask a little. But when it comes to the journalism, it's about the facts. And we were first with those. Yeah, right on. So well, you can, there was concern, I'm sure, about um, a conflict of interest or the appearance, uh, Jessica, of a, of a conflict of interest, of course, right? I mean, I, I, we're always thinking about that. I mean, candidly, I think about, you know, what's journalism? What are facts? What, what can we and do we owe readers? You know, I think to have a bunch of people in Silicon Valley sort of secretly moving things around and not be able to inform our subscribers what was happening, um, you know, we don't do that. And so I think in the past few days, I've heard from so many readers of the information, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the country that we help them get their money out by reporting on the situation on the ground. And that's very important to us. So, you know, that was my main concern. And then, of course, we had payroll that had to clear on Monday, like many other startups out here. And I think ultimately sitting in the shoes of some of those founders enabled us to think a few steps ahead of what should we be covering? What are the next shoes to drop? And I still think there are going to be a lot of shoes to drop. One thing that you have also been vocal about is the way the Wall Street Journal framed why SVB collapsed. Yeah. This is something we've asked every lawmaker we've had on today about because we keep hearing this out of Washington, which is some of some of the Republicans blaming them for their you know, ESG type policies, DEI, their diversity statement, saying that that essentially they were too distracted focusing on stuff like that instead of managing risk and, and that. Can you tell us essentially your pushback on that? Yes. Um, no, look, I mean, I spent eight years at the Wall Street Journal, uh, which is why this issue is close to my heart. And of course, this was a, an opinion piece, not something from their newsroom. Yeah. But for any commentator to say that having non-white men on the board of Silicon Valley Bank in any way contributed to this, I think it's just not informed, frankly. Um, you can set aside, you know, their lack of appreciation for diversity, but I think it's just not informed. And to imply that by issuing a proxy statement, they were distracted. I'm pretty sure companies are required to issue such disclosures. So 
um, you know, it's, it's basically nonsense, but I do think um, it had to be called out because um, it actually struck me as quite shocking that they would say that. Interesting. Uh, all right, Jessica, yeah. you've had a very busy few days. <laughs> Thank you. We really appreciate you joining us this morning. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. I was, I'm glad you asked that. I was so stunned when I read that journal piece on, I think it was Monday. And even though it was an opinion piece, it was I couldn't believe I was reading it. It is a good point to, that she makes to point out. It, it was from the opinion yeah. section. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's also interesting when she said it helped in this case to have a personal connection because it informed yeah. her journalism. Very, That was very important for her to say. So we're going to keep following this. Look what's going on with the banking sector and stocks right now. Tonight on CNN Primetime, we'll ask the experts about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. How did this happen? What does it mean for the banking system at large? Bank bust. What's next for America's money tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern? A view you'll only see, look at that, live right here on CNN. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, went to Antarctica for an upcoming climate special. He gets he will, all the good assignments. He does get all the good assignments, and he will share uh, some of these incredible images and what he learned next. Well... Since we sadly cannot all go to Antarctica, we have transformed the studio into <laughs> Antarctica for you. Check out this stunning view here with Bill Weir from the bottom of the world that you'll only see here this way on CNN. You know who did get this assignment? Of course, our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. He made the trek south as scientists announced the Antarctic sea ice hit record lows for the second time in two years. I'm so glad you went. You were greeted by the penguins. Greeted by the penguins. I'm, I haven't been this giddy since show and tell in <laughs> fifth grade. It was <laughs> mind-blowing, Poppy. I can't even tell you. Yeah. You watch The Wonder List. You know yes. how much I adore Alaska and Greenland and Iceland. Uh, this place is all of those on steroids. Wow. As, as one pro says, it, it makes Alaska uh. suddenly taste like light beer <laughs> because it's so extreme. You've got these mountains, these glaciers surrounded by this. whales. We're doing a big special. Uh, coming up, but I, I, I couldn't wait to just share. Here's my first impressions yes. waking up at the frozen world that few people ever get to see. Wow. You know, some days are more fun to get out of bed than others. Kind of like the morning when you wake up in Antarctica. <laughs> Look at this. We made it to the bottom of the world. This is so gorgeous. First steps on my seventh continent. Welcome to Antarctica. Here's the welcoming party. Hi guys. Little colony of uh, Gen 2 penguins greeting us as we arrive. Realize that sort of wonder turns to worry when you yeah. understand that those particular penguins will show you some more adorable pictures. They move like my toddler on land. They swim like Michael Phelps. They, they <laughs> seem like superheroes, but they're in real trouble. They are already being forced to adapt to the warming at the bottom of the world. The penguin nests that we were looking at, sadly, the chicks there, those eggs will not survive because they had a freak snowstorm. Normally those chicks should have been hatched by Christmas. Right. But like we're having these freak weather events up here, they're having them down there. It delayed the nesting season. So those babies won't have enough of their sea feathers to survive the coming winter right now. And on top of that pressure, as the sea ice goes away, 
that is devastating to krill. Krill are these little yes. shrimpy crustaceans, yes. and they feed everything from the penguins to the seabirds to the humpback whales. And so now ecologists are worried about a crash in the food stocks down there. Wow. We were actually hung out, spent three days chasing whales on zodiac rafts, these scientists who were taking pregnancy tests with crossbows. Of, we were, the, of the whales. Of the whales, yeah. We'd shoot a minke whale, or this is one of the best shots you'll ever see of a minke whale that came right under our raft here. And we were taking oh samples gosh. from the blubber to test their pregnancy rates, compare that to the food stocks yes. when the ice goes low. Yes. Also their stress levels, They put we put sensors on them with cameras so we'll be able to follow them. Hopefully we're gonna follow some of the same whales all the way up to their uh, breeding grounds up in Colombia. Yeah. Uh, but <clears throat> amazing. Can't wait to share all of the story. We can't wait to see it. When is the special coming? I don't know yet. It's coming up soon. soon. soon Stay soon. tuned. But, but really, gosh, and especially having little ones at home, you must think about what you get to see versus how the world will be so changed by the time that they are adults. Speaking of, it yes. is largely dependent on what we do and don't do to the world. So let's talk about the Biden administration making a very controversial move approving this big drilling project called the Willow Oil Drilling Project project in Alaska, really letting down many progressives and many climate activists. Right. What does it do? I know there have been two lawsuits filed now against it. This will drag out. You know, even if ConocoPhillips gets everything they want, oil won't start pumping out of there for six years or so. And that's a long Where, time. It, it's in you Anwar. See, it is. Well, it's close to it. To Anwar. Anwar is over here. The, okay. the Petroleum Reserve. It's interesting how names matter. It's hard to defend not drilling in the Petroleum Reserve. <laughs> but that was made in the 20s to, to get the Navy off of coal, basically. But the Willow Project right there may never be exploited. The, the economics of oil exploration, uh -huh. for example, Anwar. Right. Republicans wanted to drill in Anwar for 20 years. Yeah. President Trump finally got permission to do that, but three companies that had leases, they pulled out. It's not worth it to them. There's not sense. enough oil there. So it may not happen, but in the near term, there's a lot of disappointed young people in President Biden. Of course. Oh, thank you, Bill. I cannot wait to see it. That I was bet. highlight of all our mornings. <laughs> thank you, friend. Don. So this just released moments ago, several key economic reports on inflation and retail sales. Straight now to CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. She's here to break it down. Christine, Back with us. What are you seeing? So inflation cooled dramatically in February. This is oh. factory level inflation. You want to see this. 4.6% uh, year over year inflation number. You know, that's down from like 6% the last reading. That's good. Under 5% going in the right direction. And from month to month, prices actually fell um, at the factory level down 0.1%. So you want to see that. We're definitely seeing a peaking in producer prices. That is... Good news, the Fed has been raising interest rates. This is why they've been raising interest rates. Another measure, retail sales. Remember, this was super strong in January. Well, that it pulled back a little bit. Retail sales pulled back in the month of February, um, down 0.4% from January, still running about 5%, 5.5% year over year. It's not adjusted for inflation. So, you know, a week ago, these were the most important things we were looking at to decide what the Fed was going to do on interest rates. But I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, I like what I see on that inflation number. Retail sales cooling a little bit. That gives the Fed some room, I think, to slow down the pace of its interest rate increases. Yeah, but now everything has changed as the world's <laughs> like upended with the collapse of SVB. Larry Fink is weighing in. He's the chief executive of BlackRock. People very closely watch his yeah. letter that he sends out to investors. And in that letter today, he warns about the specter of a slow rolling crisis. And he says he does expect there to be more seizures and more shutdowns coming. And he says that SVB's collapse is an example of, quote, the price we're paying for decades 
of easy money. Yeah, and easy money, that means 0% interest rates. So there was all this money sloshing around the system and it's flooding into these banks, right? And these banks are taking that money, all those deposits, and they're putting it in long-dated treasuries. And now what happens? Interest rates go up. Those are worth less. At the same time, people are starting to withdraw theirs. It's just a perfect, a perfect storm. We are seeing today weakness in um, the futures market and in regional bank stocks a little bit again. And it's coming from Europe. You have bank stocks in Europe that are down sharply here today. Some have been halted. Credit Suisse is trying to raise money um, because it has had material weaknesses, it told shareholders this week. So now it's the, the European banks that are kind of causing the problem in global markets today. So at least we don't have to ask you when it comes to inflation and the retail sales numbers. This is good. I'm always saying, is that good, Christine? Is that bad? (laughs) The retail sales number is good. You like what you see. I like the retail sales. I'm sorry. I like the inflation inflation number. number. The retail sales number shows a little more cautious consumer, and that's probably what the Fed wants to see. So that's good. All right. Thank you, Christine (laughs) Romans. Appreciate it. All right, there's Vibology and there is Bracketology. Oh, ESPN college <laughs> basketball go. analyst Seth Greenberg is going to personally review our own March Madness brackets and tell us how we did. Give some pointers for some people at the table. I'm obviously Why are you dragging me into this? How to win your office pool? We'll be right back. Oh boy. You need to run. I mean, Annie. All right, it is here. The first game of the NCAA tournament, Texas A&M Corpus Christi officially joining the madness. The Islanders won its first game, first four game, defeating the Southeast Missouri State for a spot in the round of 64. Waiting for them now, my alma mater, the University of Alabama. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that I went to school there uh, on this program. The top overall seed. First time they've been the number one seed in the program's history. Where's that school? They tip off tomorrow afternoon. We're all going to be watching. We've all filled out our brackets. Who do we have in the Final Four? How do our brackets stack up? Here to tell us that is ESPN college basketball analyst Seth Greenberg. Ugh. Well, I'll tell you one. First of all, this is the best week of the year. If you're a sporting fan, all right, you can talk about the World Series. You can talk about the Grand Prix. You can talk about the Super Bowl. From the day the brackets come out to the end of the first and second round, who goes to work? Maybe you guys. Yeah, you feel like a little tingly. No one else. I mean, like, people don't go to work. I mean, my 95-year-old mother fills out a bracket. Who doesn't fill out a bracket? (laughs) Everyone fills out a bracket. So you guys did a pretty good job. How do we do? You know, it's kind of interesting to me. Like, Poppy, your bracket... The East and the South, you did a great job. I have one question for you. You don't have one Ivy League degree. You have two Ivy League degrees. Can't you give Princeton a little love? No. No? I didn't go there. No. I mean, We're you like can't rivals. Be, you, you can't be a, an Ivy League home. No. And can you please tell the world who I put winning? You, you picked winning Alabama. Yeah, thank you. For who do you think? That's a good teammate. If it's not Minnesota. Now, on the other side of the bracket, though. We've got some issues. I mean, <laughs> UCLA losing to UNC Asheville. I know, and Coach K even told me UCLA was underrated, so I should have put them higher. Yeah, probably. They're also ranked number two. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, sorry. That's, a, that's a little sh- shaky. And then, you know, at the top of the bracket, you have some issues. Texas A&M, Gigham and all that stuff. Texas A&M is probably not going to beat Penn State. So, But you did a pretty good job because you got Alabama to win it. I've got Alabama to win it. It's pretty good. I think Texas A&M is going to win. I picked Texas A&M. Yeah, it's because you're the all-time SEC homer. You're the SEC homer unless Auburn is involved. You see, I, 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 or I, I LSU. Through, you know, I mean, you got well, that's Missouri personal advancing, against Bruce Pearl. You got you got Alabama <laughs> advancing. You got Arkansas advancing. 
Auburn. My hometown Ooh. gal. I mean, it's unbelievable. I know my sister went to Auburn. Hopefully she's not watching. But if my Ooh. dad is watching, he will be thrilled about that. And he, I think he'll agree with me. I don't, I don't know. I don't have faith in Auburn. I think they choke a lot. Well, it's personal right there. <laughs> it is personal right there. That side of the bracket, just when you look at it, just when you're filling out your brackets, Midwest and West, uh, there are so many injuries on that side of the bracket. That's why I would suggest, I know there's a bracket of integrity around here, but I might recommend a second bracket because if you look at it, Houston's got an injury. Kansas got an injury. UCLA's got an injury. You have a lot of injuries on that side that could kind of blow up your bracket. Hmm. Now, Don, my friend. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. (laughs) Now, actually, Don, very nice drop. A good swing at Memphis. I thought that was a good swing. I mean, Mm -hmm. I like Purdue, but Memphis can pressure you. Penny Hardaway's done a great job. they got a great guard, Kendrick Davis. I like that swing. I like Missouri as kind of another swing because of the way Missouri plays. They shoot 35% of their shot, make uh, 35% of their points from the three-point line. It's a pretty good swing. Baylor in Virginia. You're knocking out Bama. I was literally <laughs> just looking at his final four. I'm like, you're not, I was where, like, where is the kumbaya? Alabama I mean, you're, knocking out, you're knocking out Bama. I'm living in reality. I mean, <laughs> I mean, so that's a little issue. And then Baylor, just a little heads up if you, you know, because you still have time. Come on. Baylor has the best, maybe the best backcourt in the country. Yeah. They're not guarding. I could get 20 on them. I mean, I mean, real and, 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 and I don't have a good first step anymore. I mean, the right. game is well past its prime right there. But again, a little bit of a risk. Kansas, it all comes down to Kevin McCullough. He didn't play in the Big 12 championship game. They got run by Texas. Yeah. Texas is really good. They played without one of their best players. Yeah. And they won that game. You know, I used to fill out my bracket every year because it, remember it used to be, oh, sorry, my neck is um, sorry, the neck injury, if you've noticed. Um, from playing basketball? Yeah, from playing basketball. It's an old <laughs> basketball injury. It used to be Gonzaga, Gonzaga, Gonzaga every year. Oh, so yeah. I used to just put Gonzaga there, and I would win, but not anymore. That is, that's all. No love for the Zags. The Zags actually are a sneaky choice right now because they're kind of off Broadway right now. You know, I mean, they, also, yeah. they didn't have a great year. They had a good enough year. They're playing better defense. You might want to rethink really that. It's always uh, about upsets. Do you, who are you watching? Are you anyone? Yeah. Around? Uh, I, I like Penn State in the Texas A&M game. I think that's a really interesting matchup. They just mm-hmm. lost in the finals of the Big Ten Championship. Penn State. They have a guy named Jalen Pickett, who's about a six-seven guard. Upsets are all about imposing your identity on the game. So, like, if 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 you can impose, say, like Virginia, they impose their identity the game. They, they slow the game down. They're really good defensively, or you can speed it up. Penn State. Shoots a ton of threes, 47% of the shots from three-point line. We didn't see your bracket. Oh, well, you have I'm one? sure it's somewhere around here. Yeah, I have Kansas. Is that no, yes, no, maybe so? Uh, I do not have Kansas. Okay. Uh, but I have, I, have, I have Alabama. You have Alabama winning? I have Alabama winning it all. I have I'm getting to the final three four. of four people at there this table who have Alabama going our, all the way. Our whole game day crew picked Alabama, yeah. which oh, is nice. crazy. We, don't, we, we have to fill these things out in two seconds. The show comes on. We're filling them out. The brackets are coming. We're filling them out. Brackets are coming. Seth. And then we have to hand them in. It's brutal. We got to go. Let's go. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seth. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. You can sign up for uh, free for the, thank you, Seth, for the ESPN Bracket Challenge on ESPN.com. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.